Thank you for listening to the Vertical Podcast. This is Jack Cesare. Alright, today I'll be speaking with Hunter Reese. Hunter Reese is a good friend of mine, and like I mentioned earlier in this podcast series, I'm not planning to talk to people just by my relationship to them. I wanted to talk to Hunter today about the Israel-Palestine conflict. I believe he can go toe-to-toe with many experts on the subject. He is a very good grasp of the region, the history of the region, the geopolitical tension, the plight of the Palestinians, the uh, acts and doings, and the justifications, if there are any, of the Israeli government. He is able to speak well on Hamas. So I believed he was good enough to come on the podcast. Uh, There's many other things I would like to talk to Hunter about. I'm curious about his positions on Russia and Ukraine, and we have a lot of theological differences. But like I mentioned, I have a lot of respect, I appreciate his viewpoints, and I think he will contribute greatly to the show and in this episode. A little bit of housekeeping. I have a podcast series coming up regarding Charles Taylor's A Secular Age. I plan on dividing the book into the sections that it divides itself into. I believe that that is a good way to consume it, a good way to present it. I think it'll be easier for the listener, you guys, to digest it as well. And another exciting update to the podcast. I have an interview with Shirley Roper, the mother of the Westboro Baptist Church. She is the daughter of Fred Phelps, the founder. And I encountered Shirley while she was picketing various places here in Dallas. And I approached her asked her for the information and if she'd be willing to do an interview and she agreed i didn't think this would actually happen it'll definitely be the biggest episode on the podcast yet so i'm very excited we've been in communication there will be more developments about this episode Uh, i understand the precarious moral dilemmas of interviewing someone like shirley but needless to say i think it'll be a valuable conversation so there's that to look forward to And with that, I think we can go ahead and start the episode. All right. I am here with Hunter Reese. Hunter. Hello. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, like I mentioned, I want most of this stuff to just be conversational. I have some points jotted down here of topics I want to talk about. Um, Before we get professional, um, let me note that I brought some nice Bacardi rum (laughs) that I spent... Um, quite a bit of money on and I like to offer all my podcast guests the two so far a liquor of their choice and uh, tell them what you did to <laughs> well, the liquor I brought you <laughs> I'm not smiling oh well yeah. I am um, so you know basically we did a little bit of a what was it sparkling cider and honey mixture it was Welch's sparkling juice <laughs> top shelf uh, and then he wanted more sugar, so I added maple syrup and then <laughs> topped it with the rum. This will surprise no one that knows me. It's all the it's sweetness all the time. true, yeah. It's as sweet I'm, as I am. I'm just drinking the rum here. Um, <laughs> also, before we start, I mentioned I would give you gifts. Usually the liquor is the gift, but you didn't want the good liquor. So I went to a bookstore. Now, anyone who knows Hunter and I knows we fight vehemently on the Russian-Ukraine debate. Of course. Here's a gift for you. Wow, what is this? Let me see. 
can read that out. Black Knight, White Snow, Russia's Revolutions, 1905 to 1917 by Harrison E. Salisbury. Nice. Now, these aren't, these aren't related to the Russian-Ukraine debate. Maybe they are loosely, but right. But uh, anyone who knows Hunter knows he's a big fan of Russian history. Very much. He's a big I fan of Russia. This. And here's your second book. Okay, what is this? The Russian Empire, 1801 to 1917. Oh, that's a good little prior volume to this this is awesome from the oxford history of modern europe love this these are great yeah when i was picking them out with desiree because you read about five books at a time <laughs> she said he'll never finish those and i said maybe not but I no i appreciate this hands. thank you so much this is awesome yeah you're a big fan of russia and uh i wanted you to have something well that, uh, let's let's be clear i'm a big fan of russian history yeah there you go <laughs> now you're catching on yeah. i don't want to act like russia is a team i support in a, <laughs> in a sporting event you always love russia <laughs> with every action yes all right um well let's move on to the the topic um like i said this will be mostly be conversational but uh give us your history tell me why i should trust what you have to say i already uh it gave you a brief introduction uh on my own before you came but uh tell us uh how you came to be a rely a reliable uh piece of information for this well if, if that's what you're looking for me to say i mean first of all you should not just trust what i have to say and that i mean that not just about myself but i mean really you know just to start off before i say anything I want to just make very clear, I don't consider myself some sort of sacrosanct piece of information or source on this. I'm really, I, I very much believe in, you know, epistemic humility, not only for myself as some sort of like false modesty, but just in general. And especially when one t talks about very complicated political conflicts, wars, whatever. I mean, we all are shaped by a certain bias, frame, lens, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, so I I really think that you know all of us have a have a right to engage with, read about and discuss in a way that is hopefully open to other people's ideas, other people's corrections, viewpoints and so I don't think that anyone should look to me and quote unquote trust that I have some sort of inherent, you know, credibility or expertise on this, but you know I I've I've been interested in this conflict and in Israel in a personal way for a long time. Um, and so I, I do think that I have some, um, you know, knowledge about it from, from not only my studies, but also my lived experience as well. And so I'm just, I'm happy to share that again with the caveat that I don't trust, I don't take anything that I have to offer as some sort of. You, you have a Israeli voting card or. So, okay. Or that, citizenship or something, something silly like that's that. That's right. And so again, you know, we all have a certain bias in this and, um, you know, so I, just kind of briefly, I mean, I, I am Jewish, like officially Jewish. Um, I actually had to go undergo an Orthodox conversion in order to make a perfectly clear my Jewish credentials and identity. But, um, you know, so I, I actually became an Israeli citizen. Um, this is, you know, several years ago, but after the age of 26, so that cleared of any, <laughs> any necessity to join military service. Um, and so, yeah. Um, you know, the coward's way out. Um, but so I do have an uh, Israeli, it's not only a voting card, it's actually a national ID for all purposes. I'm called a tu.zahut. And so I do have that. And um, I actually have voted in an Israeli election, in, in, in an Israeli election. For Netanyahu, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's safe to say no. Um, but answer. so, you know, so I, I guess technically I'm an Israeli. Um, 
but yeah, so I, I have a complicated view um, of Israel nonetheless. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, before we get into your point, let's make it all about me and let me uh, share what little perspective I have on this. Sure. Um, I have uh, not really been prior to October, the October 7th attack. I've not been quite literate in the Israel-Palestine debate. I've right. always known there's a conflict there. Right. Um, one thing that uh, struck me quite from the beginning is uh, an approach that Sam Harris takes, and that is that uh, no religion deserves its own country, uh, that being Israel. Um, as long as a country is um, modern and, and progressive and is uh, valuing human rights and 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 democracy and um, those sort of virtues we value. Uh, that is that is all that's necessary. But there is a a danger, a harm, a uh, threat of allowing religions to have their own geographical territory. Um, that's just a position that I sort of take. I'm willing to. Uh, to debate that, but also mm -hmm. um, I recognize the, or I guess in the same vein, I recognize the political rights uh, of the Palestinian people. I view the uh, Palestinian civilians as being dealt a very poor hand uh, with whatever knowledge I have of this. Um, however, I believe in the war on ideas, and when I look at, uh, when I take when I take an objective bird's eye look at the um, Hamas attacks, um, I, I become quite critical. Um, so though I criticize Israel, though I criticize uh, its response in times, though I criticize uh, its treatment towards the Palestinian people, um, mm -hmm. I mean, as far as I know, uh, being in the Middle East, Israel is... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is viewed unfavorably by almost every Muslim country in that region. Right. So, so Egypt, Syria, Iran, and I think I just saw in the news that the president or a politician in Turkey was even speaking poorly about. It. I think he had a heart attack in the same speech. I don't, I don't know, um, right, but um, for sure. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm quite against Israel, but. I stand more against terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, people know me for being quite critical of uh, Islam uh, and the uh, ideas that come from that. Um, but this uh, this isn't about me. Maybe uh, we interact more on that later. Yeah. Um, other than that, that's kind of my position is I'm against Israel, but I also value the, or I'm not against Israel. I'm uh, sort of against the idea of Israel, but I'm... Right. Um, also sort of rooting for them in the same way against uh, Hamas. Right. Because uh, I value progressive societies. I value that Israel is the only place where you can be gay and get married, um, though I stand askew to um, the transgender debate. It's the only place where you can get transgender surgery in that region. Right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, yeah, we, we can go from there yeah i mean one of the interesting things i mean i definitely take those points that's those are very interesting and valid viewpoints um when it comes to you know israel as a jewish state i think this is an interesting kind of idea because you know while while you pointed out that you're opposed to the idea of a religion 
you know, being the kind of basis for a state or a country or a control over land. You know, the Jewish question is when it comes to identity is is I think a little bit more fraught. Like, is Jewishness just a religious identity or is it also an ethnic identity or is it also a some sort of hybrid of the two? And this is I, I think that this question, it's not one that has a a patent, like simple one word answer to it. I think it's one that has defined, you know, Jewish debate over time, you know. Um, and so I think that there is, again, and I, that's not to invalidate what you're saying as an objection, because mm-hmm. I think even those who would say, okay, fine, let it be an ethnic identity, even a purely ethnic identity, the idea of defining a state based on the state belongs to an ethnic group, and there's this sort of potential at least for nationalism or supremacy and i'm not i'm not necessarily saying that that is i'm not diagnosing israel as 100 percent that but those tendencies could still rear their head and have a problem there but i just wanted to point out that the the religious question is not irrelevant but it's not the only question about what yeah, defines israel identity. i've been i've been quite interested in that jew jews are the only religion that is also a race in a way um so the 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 quote that i've heard um from a lot of people i listen to is the 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 word islamophobia mm-hmm. that, that that word is actually quite interesting when you break it down and i and i think the quote i think some people accredit it to christopher hitchens i i don't really know quite the source but he says um the word islamophobia is a word invented by fascists used by cowards to influence morons <laughs> and that really struck me because um i can be known for being quite a critic of christianity uh, we criticize capitalism we criticize communism we criticize uh, totalitarianism mm-hmm. and sometimes we even criticize democracy we criticize ideas and ideas deserve to be criticized right. that is all a philosophy mm-hmm. and religions are philosophies even some of them might be true. Mm-hmm. You know, I, as a man of faith, I think the Christian philosophy is true. Right. But uh, I'm okay with criticizing it. Um, but it appears the public isn't okay with criticizing one particular religion. Right. Uh, there is no Christophobia or Buddhophobia or atheisticophobia. Mm-hmm. There, there is no. We don't have these words. Right, the, uh, like the coinage of a special word for it. For yeah, sure. yeah, but we do have Islamophobia, mm-hmm. which strikes me as, as as interesting. People leading to the point you just made, and I promise I'm not going to talk the whole time. This is your time. No, but no, no. Uh, to the point you just made, uh, people might say, well, what about anti-Semitism? Right. Well, every anti-Semite that I see or hear about isn't ever quite criticizing the religious aspect of the Jews. Uh, most anti-Semites probably don't even really know much about the religious aspect. Mm-hmm. They're criticizing them as a race. And I kind of view it that Coca-Cola is a type of soda. Well, anti-Semitism is a type of racism. It's just purely racist. Mm-hmm. When we criticize Islam, we're not criticizing the color or the identity of the person holding that idea. Right. I I, do, I would say that there is, I mean, when you look at the history of anti-Semitism per se, there are, I think that that's what you're saying is absolutely mostly the case, but there is, I think when you, and I, again, just to reiterate from the beginning, I'm not like a quote expert in any of these fields of study or anything, but anti-Semitism does have a, at least an element of history of 
the religious anti-Semitism, the opposition mm. to Judaism per se, and you know whether that be the you know the rabbinic mindset, the rabbinic sages behind the Talmud, and these elements of Judaism that are particularly distinguishing from Christianity and other religions. Um, there is, I think, especially when you look in the medieval period, much of the um, European, what you might term anti-Semitism, opposition to Judaism, was particularly focused on Judaism. They Jesus, right? Right. Well, Judaism, <laughs> as as yeah, to put it that way. But you know, to to view Jews in a lens that was in opposition to Christ and to Christianity, mm-hmm. and that may be less of an element now. I don't think it's non-existent now. Um, but but yeah, that that is certainly th- there's all these complicated strands in the history of anti-Semitism, yeah. a- and that goes back to the complicated nature of the question of what is Jewish identity and what is it hmm. what does it tie to, right? I was I was really interested because I've never, I, I you know, growing up in South Texas and uh, something a lot easier to find. I, I I find you can find racists pretty sparse around around the area. They're, they're not as common as they used to be, but you can find them. Mm-hmm. But I, I was always under the assumption that anti-Semitism has to be made up because I've never mm-hmm. actually met a real anti-Semite. And I, it was so rare that for a long time in my life, I thought it was we could joke about anti-Semitism because <laughs> show me a real anti-Semite. And I, I remember when Kanye started doing right. uh, whatever <laughs> Kanye does, um, I thought, oh well, well here's a uh, a man just doing another publicity stunt, but then I don't I don't remember if I told you this. There was an individual who I went to Dallas Baptist with. Mm. Uh, I was never really close to him, but we interacted a few times, and he started posting uh, pretty explicit anti-Semitical um, things. So so I think one of them was. I mean, it was a typical progressive, uh, hyper-progressive, illiberal kind of video of right. uh, this Jewish organization saying, look, we 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 helped lead the LGBT rights. We helped hmm. uh, do this or do that. And it was it was all quite progressive ideas, but it was this Jewish organization just taking a lot of credit. And then he posted and he posted the video and he said, they're not even... They're not even pretending to not be the problem anymore. Oh right, right. They're they're not even hiding it. And then the next meme he posted was, "What group of people is plotting our demise right in front of us, mm. and we're not able to criticize it?" Right. And uh, to this day, he posts pretty. Re- it's interesting because he's a very conservative individual. Yeah. But you would think the conservatives are always taking Israel's side, but he's so anti-Semitical that he's not. <laughs> Yeah, it's almost Israel like this. you know, it's almost like the you know this is an often mentioned idea, like the horseshoe theory, that like on the quote far right and far left, these ideas tend to almost converge onto the same thing. And it is it is interesting. I mean, you do see what you could term anti-Zionism or, or heavy opposition to Israel um, on both what you might term the quote far left and far right, and for that matter, I mean also anti-Semitism, which I am not stating is the same as anti-Zionism. You can be you can find that on both fringes too, and I think that what's interesting and I think a good good quote I once read about um, anti-Semitism, and I I don't know I forget who to attribute it to, but the idea is that you know that person you mentioned was identifying quote unquote the Jews as being this 
this kind of monolithic liberalizing force that was behind all these progressive things that he opposed. Whereas someone from a different viewpoint might view, might view and point out Jews as this quote unquote reactionary or mm -hmm. ultra conservative or ultra nationalistic force, especially when it is associated with Israel, especially if you are a left wing critic of Israel. So one of the quotes that I'm, I didn't actually say the quote yet, but for anti-Semites, Jews are paradoxically responsible for contradictory ills, right? Like hmm. they are arch capitalists on one yeah. hand, but arch communists on the other hand. They are arch nationalists on one hand, but arch globalists on the other hand. And so that the sort of logic of it tends to fall apart. You know, if you are going to portray Jews as this monolith that are somehow malevolent, it can't be true that they are both behind all of the capitalism that one views as evil on one hand, but then also they can't be responsible for all of the communism, communism yeah. right? So it's just sort of that that totalizing logic, I think, is what's at fault here. Um, and so I, I think that that's a, that's a really, I've always thought that's an insightful way to respond to these very obviously contradictory claims. Well, let me, uh, let me ask you this. Um, you know, I value truth even if it's inconvenient to me. Right. Uh, and a lot of people ask, well, what do you have to say about all the Jews in the media or all the Jews in the banks or mm -hmm. all this and that? Uh, and it got me thinking. I mean, I don't really know quite the statistics on Jews' uh, occupations and their roles in societies. But I do know that Asians are um, overly represented in institutions, uh, right. disproportionate to their population size. Um, and I know that farmers are largely um, white conservatives. Um, and so it, it got me thinking of, well, are there certain ideologies and certain people groups that tend to go in um, a general direction in life here in America or in the world? Um, you know, Asians being overly represented in Ivy League schools, um, that doesn't mean Asians are taking over the schools, but more uh, the maybe maybe that particular culture. Asia is not a monolith. There's many mm -hmm. segments of it, but that particular culture uh, tends to to lean, you know, to to higher education. Um, Southern conservatives tend to uh, value farming and 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 the hard work and and the blue collar work that goes into building a nation that we should all appreciate. Um, does you know you tell me does Jewish culture lead to sort of the uh, representation they have if that representation is disproportionate? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really, it's a good question. And I think it's one that really should be kind of normalized to talk about because so much of the discourse around that question tends toward the conspiratorial and the, if you want to term it anti-Semitic or, and, and I think that really this is one that should just be one that's a topic of interest. Like, and I, I appreciate that you mentioned all these other groups that have this, um, these interesting trends you could point out, including, you know, Asians and, and institutions like this, academic ones, other otherwise. And I think one of the, there are many elements to this. Um, you know, part of the Jewish um, historical culture has been one of highly high literacy, high intellectualism, engagement with the written word, right? The people of the book, right? The written tradition. And I think that that correlates to, but of course does not, you know, mean a, a monolith by any mean, by any means. But it correlates to a an intellectualism and a, a love for ideas, a love for debate. Right? Talmudic Judaism is all about debating to get down and distill 
even religious ideas like religious ideas um, in the rabbinic tradition are not something that you know you have to hold a sort of deference toward you actually can engage with them and debate them and object to them and and there's this really fruitful inquiry that comes out of it and I think that that just leads toward a pursuit of knowledge a pursuit of wisdom a pursuit of success and and so there's this high academic um high academic merit that comes with that and that's I think many in many ways similar to if you look at I, I don't want to speak about quote Asian culture because there's so many Asian cultures but there's also a great meritocratic um, tendency there. I mean, um, you know, Amy Chua is a well-known Yale Law professor who wrote, um, you know, a book about being a tiger mother, right? And her, how she really, she wants to pursue excellence and have her children pursue excellence. And I think that's something that, you know, just tends to lead to a correlation of high representation and academic success. Um, and certainly that is not, you know, a trend that means anything you can conclude in the all or nothing language, like a totalizing yeah. language. But um, so those are those are just a couple of elements among many that might help to explain this. Yeah, this this question interested me when, um, you know, a lot of people will make the stereotypical joke about Asians and donut shops. Mm. And um, right. The whole thing is every donut shop you go into is owned by an Asian. And I would always quickly say, oh, you racist. <laughs> uh, but then it clicked with me when every time I'd go to get kolaches or donuts, uh, damn it, dude, they're all Asians. <laughs> yeah. And it got me really curious. Mm. And uh, like you mentioned, there's a lot of conspiracy theories and a lot of uh, pseudo racism that can go on here. But I, I actually just simply Googled it and it turns out, well, yeah, it's tied to the culture. It's um, the cost to produce kolaches and donuts is quite low. It's an easy shop to open uh, with with uh, rather convenient hours if you wake up early. Right. And um, in that culture, in, in particular cultures, it's better to, to they value ownership, right. owning a business rather than working for someone. Yeah, I mean, it's just smart. It's yeah, smart business. Yeah, th they would say it's better to, to own something, even if it's lower profit, than to work and make more money, but you still are under someone. And what a great example of a... a a kind of institution that is a true pursuit of excellence in a way that I think in the West we don't necessarily immediately Absolutely. envision. Yeah. But I think that's a beautiful insight. Like that is a pursuit of excellence. Yeah. That is a pursuit of a, that's a smart decision it, financially, but not just financially, but just a secure decision. It's one that can produce something of value to people, can produce something of value to you as a business owner. And so of course they're, they're smart to do so. It doesn't seem to, it doesn't, look on the surface to be this sort of lucrative and shiny and impressive kind of, you know, endeavor, but it, but it really is. Um, and so yeah. I think that's, that really does speak to that. And one thing I would just also add is that, you know, to kind of bring it back to one of your original questions is that, and my point about how Jews are often accused of being behind the capitalism and behind the communism. And I think that one response I would have to this is just you know, there are so many different subsets of Jews, right? There are Orthodox or very religious, very traditional Jews. And there's there atheists. Are, there are atheist Jews, right? And that goes back to the, is it a religion and or is it an ethnicity question? There are also very secular-minded, very liberal, progressive Jews. But one of the things that you see across the board is that there's a love for ideas and a love for getting involved in whatever activism or whatever... Um, political leadership might come from a, v a vast 
array of different viewpoints, mm -hmm. right? And so if you can say there's a high representation among capitalists or among the socialist revolutionaries or among whatever you're pointing to, then it's those are very different representations of the Jewish people, but they are bringing into it a sort of intellectualism and a pursuit of knowledge and a pursuit of um, you know, excellence within that that is maybe a common denominator. So yeah. I don't know, that's, that's just one instinctive um, way I interpret it. All right, so let's steer our attention to um, the other side of the globe right now. Right, I not controversial at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, let's get you canceled. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I have written here, how far back does this conflict go? And uh, then debate on the role of religion because um, in an effort to try to condition myself for this interview, I did my due liberty as a uh proclaimed liberal and I watched a Vox documentary on this conflict and um, <laughs> Vox is sort of like Vice. They've mm -hmm. uh, lost a lot of credibility with me. <laughs> I, I right. used to love Vice. Now I'm pretty bummed out with Vice. But, mm -hmm. uh, but anyways, um, Vox said, don't be fooled by anyone saying this is a religious conflict. This conflict goes back to the 40s or the mm -hmm. 30s or, or the 50s, whatever it was, mm -hmm. uh, with the British. Um, and that got me really curious. I mean, well, does this go to what I'm reading in the scriptures in the time of um, the Chronicles, I believe it is? Does it does it go back to that far, or is this purely just a modern-day political conflict? So tell us. Well, I think that that's, I mean, that's a really good question, and like all really good questions, I think it really defies a single simple answer that is a, quote, definitive answer to that question, because this really gets to the nature of what is so contentious about this issue in the first place, which is that different people that opine on this issue very conveniently in some instances draw the starting point or the start date in a different way, mm. right? And, you know, going back, I mean, you mentioned that for for you and for a lot of people, October 7th is a moment where people maybe first started paying attention to it in real time. Um, and that's, I think first of all that's natural because as as especially younger generations and I'm only you know obviously a couple of years older than you are because I'm very young. No, um, no, I think you're like thirty something. Well, but whatever. That's yeah. all right. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, especially as younger generations come of age, they they get engaged politically by you know things that are happening recently or what's going on now, and the Israel Palestine conflict is one that obviously it flares up in different cycles as time goes on, and so. What's interesting about that is that it, I think even that fact itself points to this question of when do we begin the analysis? Like when does the, the start date begin for our framing of the conflict? And, you know, it certainly does go back at least to the 40s. That's when the nation, that's when the state of Israel was founded, right, in 1948. But on another hand, you know, it also obviously starts before that because the Zionist movement, which was the movement that ideologically and with actual people movement set the backdrop for the founding of the Jewish state that became the state of Israel began in the not only early 20th century, but late 19th century. And then the question is, well, where did that come from? Well, it came from a few different things. And one of those was a historic, even if it is a biblical or if some people might, as critics say, a mythological kind of association with the Jewish people in the land of Israel. And I'm not saying that that's mythological in the sense of fabricated, but one that goes back to the mythos, like the 
the storied origin of Jewish nationhood. And so on one hand, all of those starting points are a valid place to begin the history of this conflict. What I think is important to keep in mind, whatever starting point you use to begin with, is that there is a lot of, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of layers to the, to the foundation underneath everything that's going on, right? Mm -hmm. This one cannot simply say this began in 1948. It's almost like view what created the foundation, right? There's always something that predetermined it. Right. And, and I think hmm. one of the important things to understand about the modern, you know, the modern Israel-Palestine conflict is that 1948 is a key year, but also in many ways, 1967, the 1967 June, what's often called the six day war, um, is also a key event in the history of the state of Israel, its relationship to other Arab countries, because there's oftentimes you'll hear, you know, it's not just the Israel-Palestinian conflict, but also the Arab-Israeli conflict, namely not just the Palestinian Arabs, but also the Arab peoples in other countries and the Arab states, other Arab countries themselves. Um, and so the, the June 1967 war was a very key moment for Israel's relationship with the whole world, with the West, with the United States in particular, with the Soviet Union at the time, with other Arab countries, and with the Palestinians, both within Israel that are citizens of Israel and within the territories that Israel came to control from that date onward. Um, and so, you know, the, the question of when to start the assessment is like almost a never ending question, but it is important. It is important to at least be open to, let's be open to going back earlier than whatever predetermined date we begin mm. our analysis on. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, the Jews, uh, I, I believe that uh, a particular author named James K. Hoffmeyer wrote a book called uh, The Jews in, in Egypt, and um, mm. he's kind of giving evidence in support of the uh, Exodus narrative and the and the Pentateuch right. uh, in Scripture. And um, that got me really curious of, well, maybe this does go back further than 1948, mm -hmm. um, you know, especially during the various exiles under King Nebuchadnezzar in the uh, period of the judges. Uh, there is, I think, a total of three exiles mm. throughout all of Scripture. Um, and I don't quite know the... Um, the guardrails in in when the Jews left came back. Uh, what particular ge geographical areas were theirs? Um, but I say that to ask you what what amount of this is political and what amount of this is religious? Because um, I, I mentioned you know, you were there when I was discovering who the hell Benjamin Netanyahu is. <laughs> right. And what kind of <laughs> clumsy name that is. And then who the hell is the giving... The classic Hebrew name, by the way. <laughs> but then who the hell is giving this demagogue the innocent Disney name Bibi? Mm -hmm. I was just so perplexed. Right. So I went on a Benjamin Netanyahu... Uh, binge? Binge, yeah, <laughs> binge. And... Um, a Bibi binge, if you will. Yes. And like I mentioned, I don't... Uh, I'm really not quite familiar with much going on there but I listened to um, like you know uh, Lex Friedman's interview with Benjamin Netanyahu right and I was struck at how many red flags this guy was giving me uh, I don't he does not strike me as a religious 
individual. Well, he, he's he's not. And and by the way, to say that he's not is not a controversial statement on my part. I mean, he. What's interesting about Israel is that it is really not, at least when you speak about it in broad terms, like the, in demographically speaking, it is not a very religious country. Um, that is not to say that there is not a substantial and important um, Jewish religious component, even politically, to the Knesset, which is the Israeli parliament. There certainly are, and they are key voting blocks that actually do interact with, at times, the government and at times, the opposition. Um, but, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu is a is a is a secular Israeli. I mean, he is not one that um, even claims to be not only not orthodox, but even among you know what you might call capital C conservative Judaism. But or he still, one of the, but he but he still argues for for Zionism, right? And, and I is, think which is a religious claim. Am I right? Well, so this goes back to again my earlier point. The Zionist movement is another one of these things, and I know this is becoming kind of like a cliche almost at this point that I'm saying, but. The Zionist movement was not a monolith. Um, you know, it was not a single movement with a single unified ideology. There were religious elements to, there were different waves of immigration of Jews to the land of Israel starting in the late 19th century. And the first one of which was predominantly religious. Um, like in other words, pilgrims, you know, religious Jews who were going there because of the religious, specifically religious valence to the land. Is there any other movement in the world you can compare this to? Well, I mean, that's that's this seems so unique. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. But but I mean, just to to kind of finish threading this this needle, there also were at the time really secular elements to um, the Zionist movement. There were labor Zionists who were. You might not say communists, but they were socialist, you know, movements that aimed to build a sort of socialist workers state in Israel. In fact, I mean, one of the well-known kind of cultural entities in Israel is the kibbutz. Um, so a kibbutz is like a community. Yeah, it's like it's a commune. Basically, it's a, you know, kind of uh, a workers run little community that has agriculture and and shared communal living and so that was a major feature of not only the pre-state period in the early zionist movement but even um really something that waned maybe into the 60s and 70s but even as early as or as late as the 1950s the kibbutzim were a real feature of israeli society so the zionist movement had so many different um representatives among it which i think and i say that as like a credit, that's a that's something that is interesting and good. There were there were Zionist um, groups that wanted to build almost like a truly egalitarian kind of Jewish Arab solidarity um, within the the state of Israel. What would become the state of Israel? There were those that wanted to make it a very Jewish kind of Jewish identified ethnic state. Um, these were competing visions for what the future homeland would be. Um, and so, you know, it's just it's again, it's the the reality is often more complicated, especially when, as history often shows, different factions end up winning out and their their vision becomes dominant. And then it becomes harder to see that there were competing ideas in the past that really did not win out over time. Hmm. Um, so how much um, especially factoring in now now bring in the um, the other party in mm -hmm. this, uh, especially uh, well, it's pre October 7th, but now it's the. The big theme is is Hamas, right? Um, maybe explain um, the uh, origins of Palestine, mm -hmm. the situation in the West Bank, 
right. the gestation and the creation of Hamas. Uh, I do want you to touch on their them right. being elected, right? Um, and 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 how that came about. Uh, kind of get into the politics here and yeah, and br- bring in the the Palestine the Palestinians. Of course, and and I mean, in a way, I almost feel like that's been empty in my discussion so far because the the we Palestinian. Need the context. Yeah, well, and it's not just that it's context; it's that the Palestinian question is absolutely central to, you know anyone in terms of viewing the state of Israel and its history and and whether they recognize it or not it is central um, and so you know Palestinian Arabs have always been not just on the peripheries it's easy I think when people discuss the conflict from an Israel centered viewpoint to kind of treat Palestinians as the outsiders that are literally outside of Israel like they're one almost by default assumes that they are people that are outside of Israel's borders and this external threat in reality, first of all, Palestinian Arabs, even if you look at the present day, they compose actually 20% of Israel's population. Like Israel's not just population that happens to live within Israel, but Israel's citizenry. So a fifth of Israel's citizens, a fifth of people that are called Israelis are not Jews. They are Arabs. They are Palestinians. They have voting rights in Israel. And they are they living are, outside of Palestine on the West Bank. They are living inside We're, we're talking about Israel. within Israel's recognized borders. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, and this is all throughout Israel. There I'm are certain stuff. cities. And, and again, this is before we even touch on, and I will address, I'm not trying to dance around your question. Um, before we even go to the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, these territories controlled by Israel, but that are technically, at least according to the international recognized borders of Israel outside of it. Even if you look inside Israel, you know, and there are certain cities that have a higher, you know, Palestinian Arab uh, portion of the population. Nazareth, for example, which is, of course, a recognizable city in the Christian worldview. Nazareth is a key city in the north of Israel that is almost completely Arab. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, Haifa, you know, is a major city. It's, I, I think, one of the top, I don't want to cite a statistic that's wrong, but, you know, you have Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, the two major right, uh, population centers in Israel. And Haifa is, I think, third. If not, if it's not third, it's in the top five. It also has a very um, diverse mix. Um, even when you look at Tel Aviv, there's Tel Aviv and there's Yafo, or Jaffa as it's known historically. Yafo is a is sort of outside of Tel Aviv proper, but it's part of the bigger, you know, metropolitan area. And it has Arab markets. And I mean, so what's important to realize, and I mean, anyone who is, very familiar with Israel does already know this, but to speak of Palestinians is not only to speak of outsiders. It's also to speak of people who are Israelis. Mm. There are Israelis who are Palestinians. And in the past, it was more fashionable, I think, to re- refer to them as, quote, Arab citizens of Israel, oh, wow. because the term Palestinian almost, it's it's almost like it had this bad politicized connotation to it. But there's no reason that that should be the case. Am I correct in saying the word? You might not know this. It's mm-hmm. okay if you don't know this. Um, I believe the term Palestinian um, derives from the Philistines. Is that correct? Well, you know, that's that's an interesting question. It's a complicated question. Um, because I think all my questions are becoming complicated. Well, that means you're asking good ones. You know, that's that's not a not, not a bad thing at all. Quite the opposite. But... You know, Palestine as a term has been used not only going back to the Romans, as many people know, right? Like Roman, you know, Latin, the Latin term Palestine, 
but also, you know, there there's an etymological connection to the Philistines, right? To other Semitic languages, to Hebrew, um, to other languages that refer to the area by different names. So I think there's an oversimplified narrative, especially on the very kind of nationalistic Zionist side that, oh, the Romans changed the name of the land from the land of Israel, which supposedly everyone recognized it to be, to then once, you know, the Romans, and they did, they, they you know, destroyed the second temple, right? This was 70 AD. Um, then there was a sort of, there's a sense in which the narrative says that they, in order to humiliate the Jews, they changed the name from Judea or Israel to then Palestine as in a way the the kind of simplified narrative goes they picked that name as a way to humiliate jews by associating the land's name with one of the biblical arch enemies of the people of israel i don't think that that is necessarily a 100 percent correct way to view it because i think the history of the etymology of the term palestine in association with the land actually goes back farther than that and there's some reason to believe that different peoples different cultures referred to the land by that name in fact in the early 20th century, it was not even controversial for Jews and Zionists to refer to the land as Palestine. That was just an accepted name. Mm. It didn't become so politicized until the Palestinian question came about, the question of Palestinian nationhood and the, the you know, demand for national rights and recognition as a people. So, mm -hmm. All right, so tell me what happened in 1948. So in 1948, which was, of course, the year that Israel was founded as a state, and I should, by the way, point out, was recognized by the United Nations, by actually the Soviet Union first, um, in a in a sort of UN kind of call roll call vote, if Soviet you will. Soviet Union is woke. <laughs> well, <laughs> they they did not remain that supportive of the state of Israel, especially after the 1967 Six Day War. But, um, you know, uh. That was not only the year that Israel, and it did fight a war, as Israelis call it, the war for independence. Um, but and, and this was a major war against Arab countries um, in order to assert its borders, assert its you know right to be a nation state. But at the same time, during that year, it's as is well known, this is not a controversial claim, but 700,000 Arab Palestinians who were native in, in the sense of living in the land of Israel, were expelled or were at least, or at least you could say they fled the what are now the borders of Israel and became exiles, right? They became um, refugees. And so that is a major event in that is important to at least acknowledge. You know, if, even if you are a very militant pro-Israel Zionist, one must at least acknowledge that in the Palestinian narrative, this looms large in their cultural memory and their experience of history. So was it formed in response to the Holocaust or? Well, you know, the, the Holocaust played a role. Um, but again, the Zionist movement goes back to well before the Holocaust in terms of the, the intentional movement of gathering, um, gathering people to have waves of Jewish immigration to to live in and to become populous within the land of Israel that became the state of Israel. Um, and so there's certainly, after the events of the Holocaust and the Second World War more generally, there certainly was a wave of Jewish refugees and people that were 
you know, not just to Israel, but to many places, including to the United States, other parts of the world. And so that definitely led many people to come to Israel, but it certainly was not the, there, it's not true that that's what led all of the Jews that became Israelis to come to Israel. There were plenty of people before because there were plenty of movements of immigration to Israel before that. Hmm. Tell me about Hamas. So before I speak about Hamas specifically as a political and as a terrorist organization and as a faction, um, what's important to kind of contextualize this is that after 1948, you know, the Israeli borders were recognized. And, and I think, um, so you have the state of Israel that exists and there's a, um, there's a certain border to it, right? The 1949 armistice border that ended the war, right? The war for independence technically didn't end in a recognized way until 1949. And so that was what the international community, not without exception, but what the international community, especially in the United Nations, recognizes Israel's borders. Then in 1967, Israel fought a major war over only six days and managed to conquer and defeat multiple Arab states, including Egypt, including Jordan. By the way, Egypt and Jordan are famously have normalized relationships with Israel now. They actually have treaties of peace with Israel even though, like you mentioned earlier, there are not so, you know, uniformly positive views about Israel among the people in those countries. But so real Israel, quick, real quick, sorry, yes. you said a six-day war in 1967. It was yeah. Israel against two. So this was Israel against five. I think it was five major Arab countries, including Egypt and Jordan. Um, and Israel won um, pretty decisively. And and one of the outcomes of this war is that Israel took a bunch of territory way outside of the 1949 armistice borders, in other words, the original borders of the state of Israel. This included not only what became the Gaza Strip, but be, but actually the entire Sinai Peninsula, right? So they conquered the Gaza Strip from Egypt, which Egypt actually occupied it before, um, but also the entire Sinai. They conquered what became the West, what was, you know, the West Bank, um, which was prior to the 1967 war occupied by Jordan. They conquered the Golan Heights, which is in the northeast of the country of Israel. Still, that is a territory that Israel controls. They conquered that from Syria. Um, and so there were major territorial gains as a result of this war. And that is, again, to, say, to state something that I think is not controversial to say, the status of those territories is, I think, one of the key points of very contentious disagreement about the Israel issue. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What started the Six-Day War? So that is a whole question that I will try to kind of dance around and defer because it is complicated. Because um, I, I just, I sit at a place where um, wars are, are very interesting and I'm, I'm spending right. a lot of time in World War II right now. Um, but uh, typically, uh, even though there is no perfect country, there is no perfect nation, there is no perfect... Um, state that embodies an ideology. Right. I think sometimes you can look at two and say, okay, that one's clearly the one I should root for. I think World War II is an easy one to recognize. Right. If you got to pick a bad guy, it's so obviously the Nazis. Right. Um, and territorial gains through a war have defined borders forever. And, and right. in fact, all of America's borders are irrelevant if not for the win against the the British. And by the way, and, and to go even beyond that in America, I mean, the the fact that we have 
the state that we are living in now, which is Texas, was from, a result from, from the Mexican Texas the Mexican war. war. And by the way, the Mexican American War in the late 1840s was a war of really like total conquest by the United States. I mean, we we were really aggressors against Mexico in that war. Yeah, the, and, the, and the, the original I, border was supposed to be the um, Louisiana Purchase. Y yeah, but the but the border with Prior Texas that, yeah. was oh, right the the San the river that it goes near San Antonio. Uh huh. I forget the name of the river, the San Jacinto River. Yeah, I believe. Any, anyways, the Rio Grande was not the original border. It well, went all and, the way up. To and San by Antonio. the way, there were factions in the United States in the 19, in the sorry in the 1840s um, that were so militaristic against Mexico that they actually there were chants of all the way to Mexico City. Like in other words, conquer all of Mexico and make it all the United States. But but here's the reason um, I bring this up. Right. right. I, my opinion regarding the territory of Israel. Right. changes if I think, pardon me, if I think they were the good guys in the Six-Day War. If I right. morally fall on the Israeli side during the Six-Day War, mm -hmm. uh, Gaza Strip from Egypt, the West Bank from Jordan, and the, uh, whatever you called it, Heights from Syria. Yeah, the Golan Heights, yeah. That makes a lot uh, more so, sense if, if I think they were the good guys. Totally, and I think that that point you just made is why, to go back to what we said earlier, the history of this conflict is actually so important. It is not enough to just say what events just took place and how do you feel about them because there's a whole context to it. And how you view the history really is determinative about how you assess the the status that even got us to this point, right? And so there is so much ink spilled over the history of the Six-Day War and I don't wanna issue any, like I said earlier, I don't wanna issue any definitive proclamations about the just nature of whatever war claims because it is a contentious issue israel you know israel claims that it was a absolute unprovoked assault by these arab countries on israel in other words the country had barely been alive for 20 years you know the arab countries fought israel to prevent its you know being formed in the first place in the late 1940s and so in the sort of israeli history historiography the sort of narrative of Israel's history, these Arab states came to then finish the job, right? In other words, like to wipe Israel out. Um, and, and so Israel sort of claims in its most nationalist mythos that it was this unprovoked attack on Israel, surprise attack in June 1967, that Israel miraculously, as it were, fought off and managed to have this victory in six days. I don't want to completely act like I'm, I'm scoffing at that narrative, but I do think that the history is a little bit more complicated than that. You have books that are written by, you know, I think people that have vested interests in upholding the official Israeli history, like a famous book on this is Six Days of War by Michael Oren, who was an Israeli ambassador to the United States. Um, and those tell a very, I would say, pretty one-sided view of this conflict. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that there's no merit to the fact that these Arab countries did attack Israel. I do think that Israel, you know, there was there were so many other little conflicts going on in the 20 years that intervened between this founding of the State of Israel and the Six-Day War. And so to act like that Israel was just a completely peace-loving state that was, you know, just this little David fought by these Arab Goliaths, I think is a way oversimplified mm. view of this history. Mm. So now the reason why I mentioned the Mexico thing, the United States-Mexico thing is that it's interesting that you pointed out, even 
as I mentioned, it's pretty clear. I don't think I'm going way off the deep end here by saying that the United States was pretty aggressive, pretty much aggressive in its in its conquest of Mexico sure. that led to what territory is obviously now the United States. Sure. So, you know, winning territory in a war, even when it is as a result of sort of aggression on the part of the country that ends up gaining territory, has been for hundreds of years the way that recognized borders change. However, the complicated factor about this is that, you know, this occurring after the Holocaust, after World War II, I should say more accurately, there has been a there has been an international change of view about the idea of aggression in war, the idea of gaining territory by conquest, and the Nuremberg laws, the Nuremberg trials really established a different norm about is it really right to wage a war of aggression? Is it really right to gain territory by conquest? And all these things like the Geneva Conventions, these are really relatively new ideas that have really changed the way that Israel is assessed as opposed to countries like the United States merely 100 years before, right? Whether that's right or wrong. Um, so that's just kind of like a, a lens that's important to keep in the back of our minds. You know, whether we say, okay, well, Israel gained these territories, so what? Why is anyone objecting to it? Well, the fact is, whether you like it or not, the United Nations existed at that time, and the United Nations said, no, you don't just win a war, and therefore everyone has to acknowledge the territory you now occupy hmm. is yours. And so many Israeli nationalists and Zionists say, who's the United Nations to tell Israel they have to give back all these territories they won? They won it fair and square. That's a that's a very common Zionist narrative. Um, but regardless, here's the reality. When Israel took those territories, they took under their control a bunch of people, yeah. Palestinians yeah. and other Arabs that lived in them, that if you included their count among all those who lived in Israel proper with Israeli citizenship would dwarf the Jewish Israeli citizenry in numbers. So there's a key demographic problem. For those that believe that Israel should be a Jewish and democratic state, there's a sort of trilemma. You can't be Jewish, democratic, and control all the territory and all the people that Israel still controls. Because the territory that Israel controls includes a majority of people that are not Jewish. So, in other words, you can have greater Israel that's Jewish, but it can't be democratic. Or you could have a Jewish democratic state, but then you must make a political settlement and give back this land that includes these people hmm. that are then not going to be Israelis. Or you can be Jewish and a greater Israel and have no claim to democracy, right? And that's the real... I think this is a really helpful way to view this because at the end of the day even from just the israel perspective which i want to emphasize i'm speaking now really on an israeli interest level only there is this issue that is sort of the elephant in the room right israel cannot maintain the status quo as a jewish and democratic claim to a state with all this control over all this other territory and all these other people yeah, I, I'm just curious, is there a, you tell me if I'm wrong, is there a security threat to Israel? I mean, they are surrounded by countries that, um, I mean, I mean, there are people in these countries that 
not only deny the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. but deny it because it's too good to be true. Right. 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 I mean, I think a leader in Hamas said that is, is there a security threat with, with giving this up? But, but also Mm -hmm. why are an interesting question? I think Harris posted is why is Egypt not taking in refugees? Right. Yeah. I mean, these are great questions. I mean, first of all, absolutely there is i think it's it's silly for anyone to deny that israel has to some degree to a large degree even a valid citation of a security threat security absolutely is an israeli concern and interest the question really is how do we prevent that from being a blanket kind of carte blanche justification for whatever the israeli military does or wants to do or has done right and how much do we how much can israel balance its security needs with with other important concerns humanitarian concerns diplomatic concerns public relations concerns these are all legitimate concerns as well that don't negate the security threat but actually really arguably they actually may contribute to the security threat also in their own ways Mm. right so i mean i think that this is again this is kind of not the but a key question it's it's such a key one um for sure um i don't know if there was another element that you wanted me to well 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 i do want to return to that question from a while ago of hamas and and its origins right and i and i i've promised i've not been trying to i don't think i don't think you're dancing right there's just there's there's so so much much more here and i mean again we've only like scratched the tip of the massive iceberg of this but so First of all, Hamas is not the only or first political faction that has come out of the Palestinian people, right? But Hamas was founded in the late 1980s. It is, to speak about the religion question, excuse me, it is a an Islamist movement, a militant terrorist Islamist movement, for say. sure. Right, I mean, there's no question. I'm not going to sit here and like try to make some sort of apologetics for Hamas, if anyone's thinking that, then that's, I'm sorry, I gave, gave that impression because it's certainly not happening. But, you know, they, they emerged in the late 1980s. This was a time of what many, you know, what you might have heard of the first intifada, which is an uprising, the uprising yeah. an uprising in these territories controlled by Israel on the part of Palestinians against Israeli military presence, right? And so there was all this upheaval and all of these political and otherwise, um, you know, tensions going on within Palestinians. And so Hamas emerged and it, when you talk about you, you, I know you want to get to the specific era of its control over the Gaza Strip, Mm -hmm. which, you know, it was elected in 2000, I believe five or six, I can't remember the exact year. And I, you know, I'm always (laughs) clear when I don't know the year. Um, But, you know, so it was elected then that was what, you know, that's, uh, 17, 18 years ago. So they were elected um, and they now control, again, what's important to understand about it is that it's not just a quote terrorist group, though it is. It is also this group that has this presence in in society in Gaza where it provides, it's kind of like a classic, you know. There's older members, there's elders. Oh yeah, it's, it's this classic kind of like old school political machine, you know, like the machine politics in the United States even was. I don't want to say it's like the, 
Hamas is like the party yeah, of the United States. they're a little States. different over there. No, no, no. Yeah, let, let, let me not make a complete one-to-one. -one, but what I mean is that it it <laughs> runs more than just political party things that we would associate. It, it, it has social programs. And I, I say this not they as like cartoons. a... Right. No, I, I say this not to praise Hamas, but like they, they provide this sort of patronage in order to gain people's support. It's really cynical. Like, I mean, what is what I mean to say? Like, they do these favors for the people in order to buy, keep, and earn their trust. They provide these quote-unquote services. They are a militant group. They are a political faction. They're all these things all at once. And that makes it really difficult to just say, okay, this is this militant group to get rid of because they are so enmeshed in all these different layers of society, what little there is in Gaza, that it's difficult to just speak about them as a militant group, though they are. Um, and that's one of the really thorny issues about this is that, and, and many Israel you know, enthusiasts would say, look, this is the problem. In Israel, in a, in a country like Israel, you have a clean division between here are the military figures, and here are the political figures, and here are the civil society figures, and here are the journalists. And Whereas in, in Gaza and in Palestinian society, it's a little bit more blurry, right? Like, what are the lines between military versus political? There really aren't as clean cut. So, so I'm just seen here who do, do you know many of the names this uh i think this guy smile hinia is like the leader of yeah ismail hinia yeah. yeah so so wow i'm always impressed when people just know random facts like this um are you familiar with him do you can you say much about him not deeply i mean you know like i'm sure will not surprise you at all many of the key figures in the leadership of hamas are very corrupt they are very they have a high net worth right they have links to other Arab countries, you know, in the in the region, like Qatar. Are they getting funding from UAE or you know, shrug? I mean, it's it's all very kind of shady and unclear. So certainly, there's there's what's clear is that there's corruption there. Is UAE predominantly Arab? Uh, yeah, I mean, I but I I can't I don't want to I don't want to pontificate about exactly the threads of connection. Sure, sure, but sure. No, it's certainly clear that they have backing from other elements. They're getting money the that's not from yeah. the people. Right. Got it. Right, right. Which I mean is not surprising. The people, the people are like so here. destitute. I mean, well, <laughs> not just that, but I mean, it's the people of Gaza are so destitute. They don't have yeah. money to, you know, hand over that substantive net worth to the political and military factions of Hamas. Like. What do they? What do, what can they get from those people? They're so destitute. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, it's yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so tell me the difference between um, Gaza and the West Bank. So I mean, the, first of all, the difference there are two completely geographically non-contiguous territories, right? There's no connection geographically between the two. Israel's actual proper territory divides those two regions, right? Now, both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank are the two key territories, like I mentioned, that Israel took control of militarily in the 1967 Six-Day War, right? And those two territories are the focus of the Palestinian desire for a Palestinian state, right? They want those two territories to be a Palestinian state. And that's for the entire span of time that there has been a discussion about a two-state settlement or a two-state solution to the conflict. That's what's been in mind is the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Now, the difference 
the, the difference is not just that they are disconnected from one another, but the way that Israel controls or relates to, you could say, both territories, right? So Israel used to have a military presence in Gaza as well up until 2005. 2005 was the year that Israel decided unilaterally to disengage, as they call it, or withdraw their military presence. And by the way, not just Israeli military presence from the Gaza Strip, but also there were Israeli settlements that the Israeli military forcibly evacuated and dismantled. Is that where the whole colonizer narrative comes from? Well, I wouldn't say it's where the whole narrative comes from, but it certainly was an element or a theater of that whole you know, hmm. discourse. So one of the things, and by the way, it's important to note when it comes to the question of Israeli settlements and settlers, meaning those who are Israeli citizens, but who live in territories controlled by Israel, but that are outside of those that are recognized as belonging to Israel. Again, this goes back to the, is it the 1949 borders that everyone recognizes or is it the broader 1967 territories that are not recognized? So they're considered occupied territories, right? So settlements is a term used to describe Israeli citizens building towns, cities, you know, residences outside of what is properly internationally recognized to be Israel's territory. So this does this did not begin in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip only. If you go back, remember I mentioned that Israel conquered the Sinai Peninsula in the 1967 war. And actually, Israel did not give back the Sinai until the early 1980s. You may know that Israel's first major peace treaty of two that there have been so far with a single other Arab state was with, you know, between Israel and Egypt in 1979. This was the Camp David Accords overseen by President Jimmy Carter where, you know, Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin and Egypt's President Sadat um, signed a peace treaty where Egypt agreed to recognize Israel. This is the first Arab country to formally recognize the state of Israel, which was a big deal, in exchange for Israel agreeing to give back the Sinai Peninsula. And so in the next few years, culminating in a really kind of climactic event in 1982, Israel dismantled its settlements in the Sinai, including, you know, very lovely kind of seaside Sinai settlements that Israel was very proud of. Um, and so this became a major issue. And, and always these events of Israel having to evacuate by military force its own citizens, its own settlers from its, quote unquote, its own territory gained in the war. Mm hmm. It's this event that really has this kind of shock from the Israeli public. Like, look at us. Look at how how dare we be asked to use our military to take our people out of these territories. But those were key events. And so that same event kind of echoed again in 2005 when the Israeli military took away and dismantled settlements. One of the most famous ones of which, if you look this up, is called Gush Katif. Gush Katif was this flowering Israeli settlement in the Gaza Strip that was forcibly dismantled, its settlers removed, evacuated by the Israeli military. Okay. Um, tell me what happened on October 7th, and right. tell me about the 
Israeli, uh, the Israeli response mm-hmm. and the current ongoing response. Right. Uh, well, well, real, real quick. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with Douglas Murray? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on Douglas? Um, you know, I, I haven't engaged so much with his work that I don't want to make too many dispositive claims, but I think he's an interesting figure. I enjoy listening to him. Um, you know, any interviews with him, any discussions with him. Um, I'd love to read more of his actual writings. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely, you know, I'm open-minded toward his. The, re- the reason I ask is, yeah. is I also, I like Douglas Murray. Um, I think being a conservative, but being from the UK, he offers a perspective that we're not quite usually right. uh, used to. And uh, he recently did an interview on a podcast called Call Me Back. Mm. And um, Sam Harris kind of shared that. Uh, so I listened to that and... Um, I love Douglas, his choice of language. He's very poetic. He's almost like Christopher Hitchens in a way. Uh, but anyways, he was speaking about how the attack on October 7th, you know, there's a lot of people out here saying it was a political or a passionate or a, 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 a an attack of passion. And um, it, it's quite ironic I, I this is where I get quite angry and I get quite frustrated. So many people compare what Israel is doing to the Palestinians as genocide. And the common um, equivocation is that of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. which is so ironic because they're Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost designed to be offensive. You're... It's almost, yeah. And I, I've grown quite hostile to linguistics. Many people know me. I love Louis C.K. and I, I love his bit on um, we're always reaching for the top shelf with our words. Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, Louis C.K.'s joke is... It's the nature of political discourse, yeah. Yeah, Louis C.K.'s joke is, well, anyone can be a genius these days. <laughs> you know, you used to have to invent a number. And I think his joke goes, oh, I have a cup in case we need another cup. And they go, oh my gosh, you're a genius. Right. You know? <laughs> he says, we go for the top shelf with our words. And uh, I think that's dangerous today because the uh, cushiony life we live in today... Uh, it's so easy to be a racist right. or a Nazi. Right. Um, and then, but the harm I think in that, I'm not just trying to make a old Republic appeal to let me be racist. But my problem with that is when you meet a real racist, when you, when you meet a real Nazi or a real sexist, yeah, what do you call them? Right. It, it, it really, I totally agree. I mean, this this jump to the most sort of elevated and emotionally heightened terminology is not only, I think, you know, ill-suited to a reasoned discourse in general, but it also really denudes and sort of vacates these terms of their actual potency. And it actually is, it, it really cheapens the true meaning and the true context for using these actual terms. And that's why I really, I really respect people on on different sides of the Israel-Palestine issue, and I try to listen to those that are making really even strong, strong claims on both sides of it. But I respect those who really are measured in their discourse and their their terminology. I I think that the use of terms like conducting genocide or conducting ethnic cleansing or conducting this and that, I think that those are ultimately just they're they're just not really very fruitful. Yeah. They're not they're not. I tend to see a correlation between those that use those terms as a as a sort of reflex, and I, I see a correlation between that and a real hesitance hesitancy toward just a kind of dispositive, fact based analysis of 
the situation, right? Yeah. And and you can totally engage in a very pointed critique of Israel. Like there are many people who I follow that I respect that that I would consider to be a little bit more I don't want to say anti-Israel because again that's just that to me is a loaded term, but like very critical of Israel to a degree that maybe I'm even not quite as comfortable with, but who are very measured in the way that they discuss what Israel's doing in, in Gaza. They they don't jump to saying this is a quote ethnic cleansing operation yeah. because they don't find that to even be a helpful way of reaching their audience and yeah. reaching other people. I, I get quite bothered with the with the word genocide and I right. I think it's because um not to brag, I think I think it's because I'm reading mm-hmm. Rise and Fall of the Third Reich and I'm yeah. and I'm seeing the foundations for for a real genocide and um, you know, I think what happened with the uh, Armenians and the Armenian genocide and what happened in Rwanda between the, if I'm correct, it's the Sunni and the Tutsi, right. I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think those are real genocides. Right. And uh, if we start calling, you know, you can have an atrocity yes. and have it not be a genocide. Right. Like, why, those, does it have to, why do you have to go fully to that term? But then right? if you don't call it a genocide, mm-hmm. you're in support of Israel. Right. right, and and that 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 quite frustrates me. And I think that really, just to focus on that point, I think you're making is so good, is that this is such a, this is a way to so, to so cheapen the discourse. I mean, like you just said, if you aren't fully willing to condemn it in the strongest words possible, then there's this binary thinking that that means that you are a total apologist for all Israeli yeah. military actions and. I mean, this this level of reasoning. I, I mean, that how does that even pass like well, basic well, think logic? About it, That's, you know, I look at it and it's it's you know, there's people that are even questioning the um, narrative of hyper hyper progressive uh, transgender movements, uh, particularly in sports and with children. Right. There's a lot of debate there, and I think there's an interesting debate there. But right. but anyone who's even interested in the debate. Is, is being called such harsh names that it does not surprise me that Trump is getting, uh, you, you will see me dead before you see me voting for Trump. <laughs> and and people often wonder why I think Trump has such a good chance. And it's, you know, they say, Jack, you're so against Trump, but yet you think he has uh, such a good chance. It's, he does. Because the more people that we call racist for just being interested mm-hmm. in the border debate... And the amount of people we call homophobes or right. transphobes right. who are just interested in in whether uh, a three-year-old needs reassignment surgery, right. the more you call a moderate person who's just curious if a 250-pound man needs to compete against 120-pound females, <laughs> the more you call that person a transphobe, the less surprised I am, even though I condemn them voting for Trump, the mm-hmm. less surprised I am. Right. Like, what do you what do you think is going to happen when you devolve into such just mindless ad hominem invective, like, and using these these slur words, like they become slurs. Like you're just yeah. a you're just an unqualified bigot. Well, if you if you brand people as that, we're just going to alienate them further, right? Like, if you decide to just put whatever scare tactic, whatever scare term against someone you're a bigot you're a nazi you're a this how how in anyone's imagination is that going to inspire any sort of trust or any sort of engagement in a reasoned discourse it's actually designed to do the to do the opposite it's designed to marginalize them 
And so you're exactly right. Why would we be surprised that they're just they're just further entrenched in their views and people are going to be so mad that they're just going to put the middle finger up and say, fine, you call me that, then I will vote for Trump. Because if I'm already branded as a full racist, then I have nothing to lose now. Like, and you know, already, the, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but the but the the re, what Douglas Murray said on that podcast, the reason I brought up Douglas Murray, is he equated um, the West Bank or um, got the Gaza Strip. He, right. he equated these to ghettos. Or not, he didn't equate them, but he said... He said, people are saying these are just like ghettos. Right. And he said, okay, if you're going to call these ghettos, if we're going to use language from a time in history, if we're going to equivocate this to the Holocaust, so let's assume the Jews in uh, the 30s and 40s escaped their ghettos. Let's say, let's say the Jews escaped the Warsaw ghetto. Would they then go to a music conference and then slaughter a bunch of 20-year-olds? So that was kind of Douglas's point is right. if you're going to say that this is a Nazi Jew relationship, but strangely, the Nazis in this case are the Jews. Uh-huh. Uh, let's assume they could escape their ghetto. What's the first thing they would do? Go and kill a bunch of people at a music festival. It mm. didn't make sense to me. And I'm glad Douglas brought that up. And it, it got me more passionate about how we use language. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think just to add further clarification, I think that the the most common thing that I think he's citing as an argument is the description of the Gaza Strip as the world's largest open air prison or sometimes as the world's largest open air concentration camp. It's and and it, again, so concentration like, camp, that's a word that I get people well, and, say that word and I get so angry. Well, and and I'm I'm only I'm only citing this, not endorsing this as my view and term to use, but that is that is one of the most common kind of activist slogans, if you want to call it that. And and so yeah, I, th- I take your point. I mean, what is the what is the fruitfulness of using these emotionally potent and heightened, just extreme qualifiers and terms about these issues? They don't really. The thing that is is, I mean, there's a lot you can say about how it's offensive, as you've already pointed out. But what's intellectually offensive to me about it is that it just vacates the whole argument of any content. There's no content to it anymore because it's just sophistry. It's just pure rhetoric without any, you know, there's no goal to it. There's no here, here, there's no here are some facts. Here's some objective data. Here's something for you to consider. Here's a viewpoint you might use to challenge your own. That would be actually constructive. But you if you actually what? present someone with a reasoned argument and it's just, it's the antithesis of it to just say, well, hey, Nazi, this is a genocide. Yes. Okay. But you know what's even crazier is mm-hmm. no one, especially none of these people making comments about Israel and Palestine, these people are so concerned for the yeah. Muslim population, right. understandably so. Yeah. Uh, no one's saying a damn thing about what's happening in China to the Muslim population. Right. Most people don't even know there's something happening right. in China with the Muslim population. Yeah, and, and, and that's actually... This is a common, and it's one that I'm more sympathetic to than than many others. This is a common, you know, point for pro-Israel people to make is that there's this selective focus on this one particular humanitarian crisis issue, um, and and I mean I think that there's a lot of validity to that. There's there's validity to the fact that there is a selective out- outrage going on. There's a selectivity of what victims matter like and what victims we don't even turn our you know focus on to yeah um what i would what i would just maybe also add is that that selectivity actually you can take that kind of 
even further. I mean, um, I was thinking about this earlier even, um, and now I've, oh, I've lost my train of thought. I'll recover it soon, but we'll, we can go on in the meantime. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me look at what I wanted to put my drink down. Put a look at what I wanted to cover next. Um, tell me a little bit about, like I mentioned, tell me a little bit about what happened on October 7th. Is this the third intifada? That's, you know, that's a question that I think is, it's a situation in flux. I mean, it's unclear to me. I don't want to make any proclamations or, or, you know, to that effect or not, but, um, it certainly is. I think even it, it's a pretty unprecedented event in the history of events and terrorist incidents within Israel. I mean, this is a widely known thing by now, but this event and the, the civilian casualties that it incurred this, you know, by the way, just in case it's not clear, like it's a completely horrific, depraved, you know, terrorist attack that I think anyone should be able to condemn I mean, door I mean, to door, just cutting people up. It's, it's just, it's unspeakable. I mean, these, there, there comes a point where no matter what, your kind of position on the broader context as we've been talking about so much is there's no way to justify this kind mm -hmm. of just depraved mm -hmm. targeting of civilians. Yeah. So one thing that um, I, I've tried to make it clear in my writings on Substack, I've tried to make it clear um, throughout my podcast is um, I don't like to view myself as a warmonger. Mm -hmm. I'm never really um, excited for war. I'm never quite happy about war. Right. Um, however, I'm I'm very um, hostile to doing nothing in the face of a threat. Right. Um, oftentimes, especially with the Russia-Ukraine debate, uh, I'm very open for Putin surrendering. I'm very uh, open for him putting down his his arms and and telling his troops to retreat. That sounds like a great outcome. Uh, however, I don't think he's 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 quite ready to do that and. In that case, doing the least, yeah. yeah, yeah, doing nothing ag against that force is is going to lead to more harm than 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 doing something and responding with with violence in response. Right. Um. And so I'm not saying Israel Palestine is equivalent to Russia Ukraine. Those are two completely different things. Um. But um. You know when 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 an attack like that happens. Um, a response is obviously needed mm -hmm. and Douglas Murray talks about this on the podcast, but, um, you know, I agree with him and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, uh, justify it here as well as, is you don't respond in equal proportion, right? You, you, you don't meet an attacking force with, uh, an equal force. You, you want to be a step ahead of that. Uh, this is the theory and the philosophy behind all of law enforcement is you, you know, for your safety, you don't want to match each criminal or each person's person that's going to attack you. You don't want to match them with their force. You want to go beyond that. If you're the force for good, you, you don't want to be um, responding equally. And we see this throughout combat in all of history. If you have a force approaching with you, you don't send the uh, an equal amount of troops. Uh, you, you send significantly more. You want your force to be overpowering to the enemy. And so uh, when it comes to terrorist organizations, especially terrorist organizations that are centered 
not around political ideologies, but religious ones. Uh, regarding those terrorist organizations, I I become quite hostile, mm-hmm. and and I want I want to see them eradicated. Right. I want to see them com- completely wiped out the face of our uh, advanced and progressive and, and modern societies. But I, I will say I I know the Gaza Strip is densely populated, and let me just say this just, just real mm-hmm. quick is is um it's a very densely populated area and um there are civilian casualties and uh, just as people know i argued with uh charlie kirk on this proposition <laughs> is intention matters right? so, so if you are deliberately targeting civilians um i mean that is quite clear who the bad person is there um my point is uh, Israel is not deliberately, for the sake of, uh, of 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 using their their weapons, they are not targeting civilians. Uh, any civilian deaths are purely accidental, and uh, I, I think I think a good approach to this is asking the question: Who do human shields t- t- deter? Mm. Right. So, I always try to to help people picture. If, if Russia invaded California and U.S. soldiers are stationed in California and they take Californian citizens as human shields, will Russian troops be deterred by that? It's, it's, almost, it's almost fucking laughable mm. to imagine a U.S. soldier using a Californian as a human shield against a Russian. However... You know, when America was in Iraq and Afghanistan, there's a lot to criticize about uh, U.S. involvement in that region. When a ISIS or an Al-Qaeda or a Taliban soldier takes a Iraqi or Afghani uh, as a human shield, that deters our forces. Right? Our forces will not shoot at that human shield. Right? Right? They, they know that deters us. So even though there's a lot to criticize mm. regarding America's involvement in that mm-hmm. region... When it comes down to a blanket, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy? Uh, he, the use of human shields is a good um, metric, I think. And the Israeli troops are deterred by human shields. But can you imagine if a, if an Israeli trooper or an Israeli soldier or officer used an Israeli civilian as a human shield? Right, that wouldn't deter anyone. Right. And, and I think... Con- uh, not just context, but intention matters. And so the, the, yeah. the, the sweeping statistics on social media, they make me upset. And that's why I have written here to discuss Israelis res- Israel's response to October 7th is yeah. I'm, I'm very much hostile and militaristic against terrorist organizations. But I'm curious if Israel's um, method of responding is worth the amount of civilian casualties uh, I, I, I'm very pro-force against uh, Hamas, but do you think Israel is is reacting in a way that is inefficient? Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. I, um, I take a lot of those points you make. I would just say, like, at least from like a kind of... And, and feel free to disagree yeah, with anything I, mean, I just said. I, it's not that I wholeheartedly disagree. It's just that there are at least some devil's advocate things that I might raise, like... You know, the question when it comes to civilian casualties as a result of war or military operations, 
it's important to, and, and I take the philosophical point about intention, and certainly it's true that that matters. And there's a distinction, and all these I think have a lot of validity to them. However, it's interesting that, I mean, any sort of military or official, you know, body of a country at war, when you when you listen to their own propaganda and their own justifications for what they do, no, practically no government agency or military agency is going to admit when and if they target civilians. And I and I actually even include Hamas in this. And I'm, this is, by the way, what I'm about to say is a quotation as if to express their view, which I completely didn't, do not endorse. But, you know, if you ask them, they would say, well, the people we targeted were not civilians because they are settlers and they're occupying our land. They're, they're transferred civilians. Even civil to the attack on the music conference? Right. Or, I mean, or music concert? Yeah. And again, you know, just to make perfectly clear, I don't accept this logic. I think it's depraved logic. I think it's completely, okay. you know, but I only make this point to say that any sort of any body that is at war will find some sort of propagandistic reason to justify the body count that they incur, mm -hmm. right? Whether that is proactively or retroactively, right? And with different levels of society and civilization, as some of your sources might point out to, like, you know, the West and Israel, these are sophisticated, civilized societies, right? Yes. As opposed to the barbarism of Hamas. Mm -hmm. Regardless, all these actors are going to have some sort of prior or post hoc justification for any body count that they incur. There's never one. There's a great quote, and I'm, I'm I don't remember who it's attributed to, and I'm going to butcher it. But like, no country ever claims that they are an aggressor in war. Again, this goes back to the when do you draw the starting line? Like every country will claim that they are merely invading this country to protect their their people from the barbarians that they're invading, right? Like every 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 aggressor in history claims to be acting in a defensive war, right? And 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 the point mm. that I'm making about this and again, not to justify in any way shape or form, but from the warped, depraved Hamas perspective, they are fighting a quote liberation movement against quote occupiers and colonizers and aggressors okay and so you know that just what's interesting and I, the reason i bring this up is that while i actually do i am sympathetic to these arguments are very good the only problem is is that i do still think that it's incumbent upon us as, as americans that support israel and, and i don't mean that like personally support i mean our government supports israel it's incumbent upon israelis to really think carefully even considering that our civilian casualties or Israel's civilian casualties that they incur, incur are, if you want to say that they're collateral damage, they're unintended, they still occur. And they are, it's still that's still incumbent upon us to give serious account to, like you said, is it worth it? And almost that question itself bothers me to ask. Like, is it worth it when we're asking that about the body count of civilians that they're not asked is it well, worth it well, or not well, with their lives, a, you know? I take a very utilitarian approach. Right. And and I, and I believe doing nothing is doing something. Mm -hmm. And I think the question to always ask is, well, if, if I don't, if, if there are not casualties or, you know, there there is always a loss uh, to every action. And, and let's say you know, 10 civilians die 
in this is in an Israel response to mm -hmm. Hamas. Let's say uh, they attack a building. There's a thousand Hamas militants in this building. There's ten innocent civilians. You level the building. Um, you ask me, is that worth it? Well, I don't immediately right off the bat say it's worth it, but mm -hmm. I, then I ask the question: Well, how many people would die had those Hamas militants survived? Mm -hmm. How many people would die at their hands? Yeah. Well, well, the the number is almost certainly more than ten. Mm -hmm. and, and and so if you're gonna take if you're gonna respond that way, that's a you 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 take an interesting response. But let me ask you: Let me do you one more and ask. What do you say, and, and I agree with this line of another way you can determine um, the, the morality or the um, justification of a state is by asking what would happen, what would they do if they had the power to do it? And I, I, and I, I, I you know, there's a lot of criticism for America, and uh, I, I am often one of the critics of America. But I often fall on America's side because America is the most powerful nation. You ask, what would it do if it had the power to do it? Well, it's probably what it's doing right now. Because it does have the power. Because it does have the power to do that. Well, and likewise, Israel's a nuclear power. Is so. Israel is the most advanced militaristic and technological force mm -hmm. in that nation. What would they, you know, people ask, you, you know, they want to eradicate Palestine. Well, they have the power to do that. And by the way... And to, they haven't. And by the way, and this is a point I actually meant to mention earlier, you know, when you're talking about how inflated it is to use terms like genocide, one of the things that's so... They could genocide. Yeah, them. they could. And, and actually, what's so offensive about that idea is that, like I mentioned earlier, a fifth of Israel's own citizens are Palestinian mm -hmm. Arabs. So the idea that Israel's trying to eradicate like in a systematized, you know, genocidal way, this people, when they hold within their country citizens yes. that, you know, and, and by the way, I will say just to kind of like hedge this, there are plenty of valid concerns about the way the Palestinian citizens of Israel are treated in an unequal way in certain regards hmm. when it comes to Israeli Jewish citizens. Absolutely. But the, the, the notion that they're being subjected to the even first stages of a genocide is just ridiculous well so yeah absolutely to, i take that point yeah to carry the point the next question is well what would hamas do oh, if right. it had the power to do it right which it does not yeah which it does not have the power uh -huh. well well they well they they help us out here and they tell us what they would do mm -hmm. right you, you when you have someone who says well i don't believe in the holocaust mm -hmm. uh but but if i had the power to do a holocaust i i certainly would yeah, it's the classic Holocaust denier logic of like, it didn't happen and it should have or whatever, yeah. you know, like that's the you know, classic you, joke. You meet a yeah. Holocaust denier and it's like, okay, well, that's as bad as a person as it can get. And they say, it didn't happen, but it should. But it was right to have happened. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right, right. So so we know what they would do mm -hmm. if they had the power to do it because they help us out by telling us yeah, what so they would this do. Is, this is actually a classic. What I do you think, say to that? And I... So this is like one of those classic arguments that you you encounter inevitably in the whole engagement with pro-Israel, you know, rhetoric. And and I think it even goes back. This is one of those longtime quotes from probably someone like Golda Meir, who was, you know, prime, prime minister of Israel in the early 1970s. Um, you know, like if the Arabs put down their arms, we would have peace. If we put out our, our, down our arms, we would have no Israel. Right. Like and so there's a part of me that. 
this is comp- there's a part of me that is compelled by this kind of reasoning but at the same time i just i have to say like there's also an element to where this feels to me just like it's a propaganda like ploy mm-hmm. right like I, I i take the point to a certain extent for sure but i also do think if we are going to make this argument hinge on the notion that whereas hamas is this brutal you know, barbarian force that slaughters civilians with absolute impunity and targets them wantonly, whereas Israel tries supposedly to minimize civilian casualties, then we should really, the then to me what I'm bothered by is when Israel enthusiasts then use the same sort of standards to judge the actions of both rather than holding Israel to a higher standard. And then they actually get offended when Israel's held to a higher standard. But in my opinion, isn't that aren't you invi- shouldn't you be inviting a higher standard of assessment if you are going to make that kind of hmm. you know comparison? And I, and I don't think that a lot of Israel you know supporters really do want that higher standard of you know it's not just enough to minimize civilian casualties like you know we really like every civilian life lost should really be treated you know treated with gravitas and i will say this it's very important to me and i i I think about every society especially our own and israel and other places that i have interest in it's important as always of course to distinguish between the government and its actions and when you talk about israel as a whole country right like because a country is not just made up of the elected government and the military and the, the the institutions of power but rather, what is its civil society like? What are its activist organizations like? What are the journalists and the institutions, the newspapers, the um, non-governmental organizations or civil society groups? And one of the things that I am enthusiastic the most about Israel, and if you had to ask me, like, well, how, how would you defend, is Israel really a democratic country? I would say one of the best cases for Israel as a democracy or at least having democratic institutions, as weak as they may be, is that they have newspapers like Haaretz, which even more than the New York Times, which honestly is like, to me, such a, it used to be such a much more adversarial newspaper to the United States government. It is now completely just, they hardly give an attention to all the ways that the security state abuses civil liberties. But Haaretz in Israel really gives adversarial reporting to the Israeli government. There's Haaretz, there's organizations like B'Tselem, which is the name means in the image of God. Like it's a human rights organization that really, really is strongly critical of things that happen within Israel and outside of Israel when it comes to Palestinian and other human rights. Like there are so many organizations and people within Israel that are a vibrant voice for different political views. The Israeli Knesset is filled with Arab members and other Jewish members that are dissenters and all different parts of the political aisle. So I, it's always important to distinguish between the government and the whole country. And the whole country of Israel, I think, is I still have a love for it. I, I love it. I follow it. I read, you know, Haaretz in Hebrew. I read, you know, all these. I, I follow the conflict. And some of the best and most strident critics of Israel that I'm most comfortable listening to are those that are from Israelis themselves, right? They have the best voices and even are sometimes more harsh than I'm comfortable being about, you know, Israeli actions. So, yeah. um, so, so before we get into that, um, there are, 
a lot of hostages that have been taken right and are under uh, Hamas control and uh, some of them are getting released but um, they're getting released in a pattern to where um, they are you know if a family has been taken the whole family's not being released one or two individuals are released mm. that way if they talk or if they say something unsatisfactory their their family is then in jeopardy right um and and so i i do sort of disagree with you mm. in the response of israel uh mm. may, maybe maybe i don't disagree with you as much as i think i do i um i i believe the density and the concentration of civilians in gaza right. is unfortunate mm-hmm. um and when engaging with Hamas in such a dense, I mean, I mean, it just boils down to the fact that these casualties, I don't think we can attribute purely to Israel, right? So, so if you're a force that builds your headquarters under a hospital, okay, I mean, really sit with that philosophy. If, if I'm going to put my military headquarters in a, in a fucking hospital, mm. right? And I'm also going to take my prisoners to this hospital and the hospital is working. It's mm. operating as mm-hmm. a hospital. When you ex- now extend that philosophy out, I'm going to set up a forward command center in someone's house. Right, right. I'm going to, I'm going to take cover and, and fire mortars from an elementary school. Right, right. If that's your philosophy, whose fault is it, really, for civilian casualties? Right, right, right. right. I mean, I mean, I mean. Try to help me pinpoint this. Well, so this is where I would just go back to a point. I, I, I think I was starting to try to, you know, clarify or give give voice to earlier, which is that, you know, if we're going to draw this sort of distinction between, you know, the Hamas disregard for human life, including Palestinians' own life, versus the Israeli regard for human life and attempt to avoid incurring civilian casualties, then I think we really need to sit with that and follow that through to, you know, what that should what that should entail, which is that, you know, for example, what does it really mean to again, justifiably want to have the goal of eradicating Hamas, right? Like like I mentioned earlier, Hamas is not just purely this small little ragtag terrorist group. They are really entrenched in so many layers of Palestinian society for worse. Now, I'm not going to say for better or for worse. For worse, let's be clear. So what does it really mean to have the goal of fully eradicating them? And what I mean by that is when you look at the casualties that have been incurred so far, not only civilian, but just Israel's operation. How much have they been successful in eliminating of Hamas so far versus how many civilians has that quote cost? And so if you scale that up to what it would mean to fully eradicate Hamas, we're talking about so many, so many Palestinian civilians lost. And and so I do, I don't have the easy answer of, is it worth it? Hmm. I'm What I'm raising I think is it's an uncomfortable thing to even be posing. And I know you mentioned the kind of consequentialist or utilitarian, if you want to call it that logic of this, but I I'm really 
I sit with the moral quandary of, I don't feel like I'm even in a position to say it is worth X or 10 times X or 100 times X civilians that are, whether you intend for them to be lost or not, are inevitably, you know, they are going to be hmm. at the altar of this goal of eradicating Hamas. Like, how realistic is it? How How is it? What To what percentage has that been accomplished so far? It's a small portion of it. Hmm. And so I just, I pose all that as not a definitive take, but just to just express these these points, I think that lead or should at least lead to some discomfort, right? In this, and and so I, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't pose that mm. as a solution. So, I, so as a, I, pro- I, a problem. I obviously want all the civilians mm-hmm. of the Gaza or, or the West Bank, um, any location, Hamas is. I, I obviously want. Uh, not the not the West Bank of, of Gaza. I obviously want all the civilians in Gaza just out of there, mm-hmm. just 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 completely, for the time being, uh, out of the way. So that way, it's just purely IDF and 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 Hamas, yeah. uh, which leads me to the question of why is no country mm-hmm. taking these people in? Yeah, I mean that's you know that's Egypt in particular. The the reality is that you know i think we can kind of think about this in a broader sense i mean the idea of taking in massive numbers of refugees is something that it's a question being posed in many ways with other conflicts not leaving you think aside it's a this. similar question that uh, a lot of european countries european are having countries with the united having states with syria having. absolutely hmm. and and i mean ireland you're seeing much just domestic turmoil ensue over this and and i think that unfortunately and this is one thing i would level as a critique against many western commentators is that it's all too easy to look and say oh what's the problem they're arabs you're arabs jordanians you're you're arabs palestinians are arabs and in fact you have many people that's a common is pro-israel thing to just conflate oh Jordanians are basically Palestinians too. So they, these are your people. You should just take them. <laughs> and it's easy to preach that kind of thing to another country, but look, whether you like it or not, for whatever good reason or not good reason, they're not. They don't they're not open. They don't want to Egypt doesn't want to open the border mm. to Gaza. Mm. Jordan doesn't want to open to Palestinian in, to, to intake of Palestinians. So that's the whether it's a justifiable or not justifiable thing, it's just kind of it's not it's it's not enough to just say, well, here's a whimsical solution I'd love to impose. It's just not happening. The real politique of that is that it's not it's it's not something these countries want to do. They don't want to absorb whatever number of these. And like you mentioned, the Gaza Strip is hugely densely populated. It's two million people packed into a tiny strip of land. It is a miserable humanitarian crisis going on. And it's it's a real problem and and when you go back and I know you wanted to talk about Hamas and we kind of mentioned this earlier but on one hand yes they were elected and and I think one thing that bothers me about the sort of you call it typical is defensive Israel rhetoric is well the Palestinians elected Hamas so like in a way they share this sort of like culpability because they elected this as their leadership well there's so many ways in which this to me is a problematic take to have. And and I mean that in the following way. They were elected, as we mentioned, 
16, 17 years ago, half of the population of Gaza is 18 or younger. So literally could not have possibly participated in the political election of this leadership. So already on its face, that is not a justifiable, you cannot look at the current makeup of Gaza and say you voted for Hamas. They, they didn't, factually they didn't, at least half of them did not. What happened to all have. the adults? Well, I'm, but I'm saying like, I'm saying that, you know, 18 and younger were not even voting age when they were elected the huh. one time that they were in the past, right? So, and what's amazing to me is that this rhetoric is employed, whereas, you know, when you look at, and, and of course, I'm sure you're aware, the Osama bin Laden letter went viral recently. One of the things that Osama bin Laden charged the United States with is, well, you Americans elect your political leaders. They do these crimes in the Middle East that we are that he Osama is accusing the United States of. So, your civilians, so what? You your civilians elected your leadership, and not that I endorse the reasoning of Osama bin Laden. Let me make that clear. But if you're going to stack that against this claim against Palestinians who voted in Hamas, Osama has a factually better basis for that than... Yeah, but I'm so sick and tired of... I mean, this is a whole another podcast. And by the way, I'm not arguing Yeah, but you things. and me have consistently <laughs> disagreed and, and argued on this. And, and on, it, on what, though? The, the Noam Chomsky sort of taken... Uh, let me put it on the record. I kind of like Noam Chomsky. He's mm -hmm. like a guilty pleasure for me but this idea that the response of various middle eastern countries and their hatred for <laughs> uh the west and they're just they use that as justification for you know things like 911 right right i i look at 911 99% a religiously motivated act 1% you know, 1% uh, a reaction to to West, Western involvement in the Middle East. By the way, just to be clear, like I only bring this up and I, I'm only citing this as like this was a purported hmm. stated official one element of the reason. I, I'm not even I'm not even saying I'm not even putting this on the table for like I, this was justified. This was not. Okay, good. I'm only I'm only saying this really to focus on Hamas and to contrast. But let me this but let claim. me say yeah. let me say like, you know, I attribute uh, 98%, just like I would with Osama bin Laden, I attribute 98% of what Osama, or not Osama, what Hamas did on October 7th to religion. You, you know, where do you, what's your response to that? So, and this is, you raised this early on, and I, I kept meaning for us to get back to this. I'm glad you asked this again. Here's Here's what I would say. It is certainly true that religion is not nothing in this conflict. Obviously, that is the case. Hmm. However, I do think, and you mentioned the Vox kind of argument about this, and I'm not going to fully echo that and say that they're right, but I do think that there is a tendency to, let me say it this way, to oversimplify the conflict as being this religious tribal warfare and I don't think that that is the, let me put it this way, the only lens that is, or even the, pr the primary lens that is valid in viewing this. I don't think that this boils down to a religious dispute over the Holy Land hmm. only. Now, is that an element, an inflaming element, a salient element of it? 
Absolutely. Would that you is say true. it's the majority element? I personally am uncomfortable with making that kind of hmm. claim, and I, I would probably not even agree that it's See, the majority. See, I won't even element. call it a religious conflict. I'll okay. just say that the core tenets, uh, when read in a specific way that Hamas is reading it, mm-hmm. justify and excuse their attacks. Well, I, w- I will not dispute that, but I will counter this by saying that, quite frankly, there are elements within the very zealous, zealous religious Jewish minority within Israel that unfortunately are having a larger and larger influence over the political leadership. Hmm. And again, not to say Netanyahu is a religious zealot, quite the opposite, but his government is in coalition. It certainly with, helps him. Well, yeah. And and those those nationalist religious elements are influential in his government. And they're actually, they're key to keeping his government even in, in a voting block. If his government falls apart, there are new Israeli elections like a parliamentary system devolves into. So there are these religious, I would even say extremists among some of these, especially Jewish settlers in the West Bank. And we, we've, this is another topic we've been not getting toward, and I'm glad it's coming up now. And it is really frightful. And I, I mean, I know many, many people who are committed Orthodox religious Jews themselves who are even very, they love Israel, they support Israel, but to see some of those elements and the way that they attack civilians in the West Bank, Palestinian civilians, as settlers who are moving into these territories and they become really aggressive and really hostile, there's an element of religious zealotry there as well. And so when you mention that the way that Hamas interprets religious texts to justify certain heinous acts, unfortunately, that is there to be found in the texts of rabbinic Judaism as well. There are Jewish supremacists, you know, I'm not saying valid readings, but they are conclusions that you can make from reading the Talmud in a certain way, the the Bible, the Torah in a certain way. And so that hasn't, that has a role to play in inspiring, legitimating, justifying, whatever you want to say, some of these um, instances of settler violence. And again, I mentioned earlier, Israeli groups, some of it, some of the best reporting on this comes from Israeli human rights organizations. And they are intrepid reporters and activists and human rights advocates who document and say, hey, look, this is what our Israeli citizens who are settlers moving into these territories, here's what they're doing. And you know what? The reason why they shine a light on that is not because they hate their own country. It's quite the opposite. If you love and care about your society and its democratic nature and want to preserve that. You criticize it. You criticize it. Yeah. And so one of the things that I'm, I'm, I've been the most bothered by, and this comes to whether it's American politics and our foreign policy or domestic policies or Israeli or any of this, is the idea that you would single out a dissenter and say, you must hate your country. You must be a self-hating American. You must be a self-hating Jew. And, and it goes back to the same sort of branding. You use these slur words rather than engaging Tommy. with the arguments, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so anyway, I mean, that's a long-winded answer just to say that 
I don't discount what you're saying about the religious element, but I do want to point out that it does cut both ways. Not to necessarily equal degrees, but let's not let, let's be clear if we're going to go that route, you know. I agree, but there are ideas that are less harmful than others. Mm. Right? And, and 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 there there are some religions that are less helpful than others. Right? You you can look at the tenets of Jainism and and not take from the tenets of Jainism or or Buddhism. You can't get an easy justification for violence. And and I would ask you how much work needs to go into um, taking a violent narrative from Christian or Jewish uh, Jewish text um, versus how easy is it or how difficult is it to get a violent narrative from uh, the the Muslim scriptures? Yeah, I mean, I rather than try to kind of put them against one another and say which one is more prone to violence, I would just say that I think that it would be wrong to underestimate <laughs> the ability to marshal the texts and authoritative, you know, scriptures and and doctrines of a certain type of Orthodox Judaism to then appropriate that toward a sort of supremacist political agenda, right? Like it's definitely there. There's a history of that there. And it, you know, one of the things that is true is that that is on the fringe of Israeli society yeah. and always really has been. Yeah. Now it has maybe become more ascendant, you know, recently, but it is still on the fringe. Um, and that, that does matter. That does matter to your point about making this, con you know, comparison and more specifically a contrast. Um, but I just, I do, it, it's something that you do see. It's, it's on the underbelly of what goes on in Israel and in its territories. And again, if you actually like, if you shine a light on this, it's, it's there. And it's, once you see it, it's hard to ignore. It's hard to just, you know, so, pretend it doesn't count. So uh, there's a lot of people out there saying that the more Israel combats Hamas mm. in the Gaza Strip, mm -hmm. the more, uh, children, if the children are being, turned into puddles they are seeing their parents yeah um you know ripped to shreds right and the common argument is that that was given to american military presence in iraq and afghanistan was that um these kids are watching their parents die by u.s hands and they grow up and they say um you know in retribution you know whatever killed my parents i'm gonna kill them right. and they, they end up joining al-qaeda or the taliban or hezbollah whatever it be they join these forces. It's radicalizing. Yeah. yeah, less for the ideology of the movement, but more of, oh, this is the movement that's going to kill my parents' killers. I mean, even the CIA during the Iraq war acknowledged that there's this concept that they use, the term they use called blowback, which is that if there are the, if the intervention, if the military presence gets to a certain point and there's, you know, it gets to a certain critical mass, there is this idea called blowback. It will create more and engender more hostility that will cause more and more, you know, uh, resistance and terrorism. But my response terrorism. to that is, is you punish the Nazis enough. Germany is now an excellent ally to us. Uh, Spain went through a civil war against communism, and you won't really find much communism in Spain today. Um, you know, I though I... 
I'm quite interested in the moral debate of dropping two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Japan is an excellent and well-respected ally to America today. You know, I look at these these regions um, and the conflict. I mean, take uh, U.S. and Mexico. We have a good enough relationship with them uh, when you compare it to the war we had with them. Um, so it, it appears that some regions can be uh, brought to a point where the relationship is redeemed. Is is this idea of blowback that you speak of and, and the CIA speaks of, is it continuous? Like, is, is, is there not a threshold where you can pass where... Palestine, the, the, the Palestinian, Palestinian militants put down their arms and, and, then, and then there is peace. So I think this goes back again to the importance of context, which is it's, it's the distinction here between some of those historical examples you mentioned in this is not only on a cultural Western or Westernized, Westernized in the case of Japan, versus this sort of, it's it's all too easy to adopt this sort of Orientalist approach of like, oh, this is a fundamentally different Islamic culture that doesn't abide by the same logic and rules as the West. But putting that argument or or thought aside, one of the other key differences in context is that in the Palestinian situation, there is a fundamental sort of sense of national humiliation and yes germany was humiliated in the losses of world war ii and japan as well but not just humiliation but there's an unresolved statelessness there's an mm. unresolved mm. sense mm. of political just sort of basic indignity going on and so there is a political solution that is has evaded this conflict for decades upon decades upon decades that is unresolved and in the in the until it is resolved you're not going to be able to even have the same basic elements there that you had in the germany and japan situation where at least notwithstanding the humiliations of their defeat in world war ii right there still was a country and a people mm. and a state and the, hmm. the remnants of a government and a society and a culture. And whereas in the Palestinian situation, there is no, it's, it's, it's a stateless scenario. There's a, there's a scenario of occupation, of dispossession, right? And, and I don't want to, to um, I don't want to split hairs with the pro-Israel people that would quibble with the details on that. But What's important is that in the Palestinian narrative, that's the case, right? And I think that's a legit, to a varying degree, there's a legitimate point there to be made. And so this is when I go, I, this is where I go back to what I mentioned earlier, which is that even from just a self centered and self serving Israeli perspective, this political, this crisis in need of a political solution is the elephant in the room, right? And there's all these other things that are valid. It's a security concerns, you know, war against terror, all of that, fine. But until Israel really resolves this outstanding question, I don't think that we're going to have the same scenario where you can hope mm. for the Palestinians mm. to have this 
reckoning that you're mentioning. And that's what I would point back to. And and that, again, just to kind of circle back to where we began this conversation, it is so critical to fully appreciate the history of the conflict and and really to to be able to reckon it from the Palestinian narrative as well. And and I say that, you know, in all honesty, if you had to, you know, ask me, I I will acknowledge I inherently am more understanding of the Israeli perspective, not only because I, I guess, happen to be an Israeli, but because I speak that language, I there's a lot more connection to the West. It's just, it, I just, I know it better. I'm yeah. more comfortable in an Israeli mindset. I'm more comfortable in, like I mentioned, even the criticisms of Israel that I'm most comfortable with are those voiced by but yeah, the Israeli it, but dissenters. But it also, it also, and it makes you more passionate about seeing Israel get to a more humane uh modern progressive um humanitarian society yeah it makes you passionate of wanting it to treat the palestinians with uh, political rights and political justice and just to go back to yeah. your point earlier what you could say is that that is a demand for israel to more and more perfectly live up to its own stated ideals hmm. if israel is going to continue to use this this line of having the most moral military in the world, then I want it to actually live to those ideals. Yeah. And if it's going to claim to be unlike the barbarians that wantonly attack civilians, those that only do so accidentally and want to preserve civilian life, then I want those ideals to be more and more perfectly upheld. So, you know, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm calling on the better the better aspirations expressed in, if you want to be cynical about it, Israeli propaganda, I, I actually, I want those. I want those to be realized. Mm -hmm. I want those to be more and more fully realized. So you've mentioned a couple times um, Israeli sources that are critical of Israel mm -hmm. uh, that you appreciate. I want you to talk a little bit about those, but in the same breath, I want you to also respond to the Western uh, liberal response. Now, Yes, I, I want to say, um, I, I I technically I identify as uh, liberal, but I believe the common liberal of today. I, I I'm I'm realizing the importance of Noam Chomsky's work on language. Yeah. Um, yeah. Liberal might not mean liberal mm -hmm. uh, anymore, and progressive might not mean progressive anymore. And in, in fact. I would love to be called a progressive liberal, but when I look at <laughs> progressive liberals today, they are mm. anything but progressive mm. and they are anything but liberal. Mm -hmm. It is, it is quite frustrating. And so if you're going to, especially when they are so eager to betray tenets of free speech, right? It's, it's so, uh, infuriating and, mm. and, um, I'm trying to remain professional, but it is, it is so smooth brain. And by the way, it's so funny to me that it, is ha it has actually taken the Palestinian issue for them to rediscover, so it seems, the importance of free speech. Which, by the way, they're not wrong in doing, but it is so interesting to see these Ivy League presidents who have been trampling... Talking about if, if fucking Holocaust is against well, their... But here's, here's the thing. Or genocide. Controversial it's, take. Uh, they're actually arguably not wrong in this, but you know what they are wrong in? They have trampled roughshod over these academic freedoms and free speech rights for the last, what, three years, especially since 2020, if not before. 
do you think if there was any other group that they would they would hide behind that this is a f academic freedom or a free speech right to utter and call for these genocides? No. If this was about any of the protected minorities that they care so dearly about and want to sacrifice free speech at the altar of serving minority, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion goals, no. So the thing is, I only say that just to say, like, you know, they should not be called liberals because no, not because these progressives don't care about fundamental liberal principles. And it, and it makes someone yes. like me when I say I'm a liberal, people mm -hmm. might look at me and they they might think. Uh, oh, so you believe what what these you know, smooth brain, archaic mm -hmm. um, anti-intellectuals. Yeah. Think. So I'm so but, glad but you asked this we, question. Yeah. Before we ramble about them. Yes. Tell so me about this question uh, and, and, sources. and I love I love that you pose this question about these two things. Israeli sources in contrast to the American liberal, if you want to use the word liberal response, because I think this to me highlights what is so interesting about where I how I take in this conflict because I on one hand when I see what passes for pro-Palestinian activism among college leftists in the United States you see some of the most ignorant just I mean quite frankly just stupid people that don't know anything they're talking about they they are such bandwagon conformists. You know, what's so ironic is people, they go in, into this, quote, radical posture when they get into college, and really what these people are are the most craven conformists you can possibly imagine. The The desire to be seen as radical is the most height, heightened conformity in reality like yeah, they, when they think special, that they're no so special they're so snowflake yeah when everyone's radical no one's radical exactly. in fact when it, in fact it, it it becomes radical to be conservative i know yeah and so they're and and the fact that they can't have the self-awareness to recognize that this is what they're doing this is why conservatives have actually taken up the mantle of free speech in the last several years now now by the way i, I don't mean to say wrongly because it is I think when you actually do look at the classical liberal and the classical conservative traditions, they actually do share in different approaches a view toward free speech mm -hmm. and should. And that's what everyone should. Um, but yeah, so it's it's so... Well, well ideally, mm -hmm. you you have, uh, you know, founding fathers desired a two-party system. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you know, so, so for when you when you find people that are uh, you know, let's kill all conservatives. Let's kill all liberals. It's actually very un-American in that. Yeah. Uh, found now, uh, I'm very open to a multi-party system, but yeah, the idea is all parties differ on um, some some nuanced positions. But, totally. But ultimately, share a two, common. Yeah, yeah, your two parties should all be in agreement on um, the rules of the game, right? Of, of like, free speech. Yeah. Of democratic ideas of maybe a separation of church and state. Um, because those were the hallmarks rights. of tyranny that the country was founded in order exactly. to distance you know, oneself These from. ideas were so profound after you escape their antithesis. So, right. Whereas yeah. what you have now is... We're debating the core ideas that should be yes. central to each ideology. And so what's so amazing to see is just, uh, frankly, just some repulsive 
behavior that's purportedly to be an advocacy of the Palestinian cause that, I mean, when I see it, it's like, you know, one of those memes, it's like the, the capitalist in me leaving my body when, you know, or whatever, like yes. that template, <laughs> the, the critic of Israel and me leaving my body when I see what passes for pro-Palestinian activism, <laughs> that's like so true. So this is what I mean when I go back and say, I feel so at home when I look at Israel and its vibrant democratic society and I see even as much as they are kind of under siege and they are really kind of marginalized by the prevailing, I would say, kind of conservatism and nationalism of Israel right now, the fact that there are still groups and there are, you know, there are Arab politicians in Israel that are speak from the minority, speak from the Arab political parties in Israel. There are uh, newspapers like Haaretz, which does real reporting, does real journalism, and they also do real good editorial opinion writing as well. They, they're, they're, what's interesting about Haaretz, which is roughly oftentimes described as the Israeli New York Times, which I think is insulting hmm. to the New York Times because that suggests <laughs> the New York Times actually has any sort of like real meaningful descent from American liberalism, which is just like, it just exists to worship and serve. And Haaretz has a whole range of opinion writers. There are people that will actually make a case for the Netanyahu government in Haaretz, even oh, though wow. it's supposed to be a liberal, yeah. you know, that I think is, that's valuable. Yeah, yeah. Notice what happened, in the, notice what happened in the New York Times when there was a, you know, mildly conservative op-ed writer in 2020 that, this is Barry Weiss. Well, this was in the Barry Weiss something era, something like that. But it was huh. the it was Brett Stevens who penned an op ed in support of the proposal from Senator Tom Cotton that the National Guard should be deployed in order to help quell some of the riots that went on during the BLM era, and the whole woke response was, "This is putting Black lives in danger to argue that the military should be brought in." And you know what? The thing is, if you actually looked at the time, what Tom Cotton was advocating was actually supported by a significant percentage of American voters. So whether you like that idea or not, or think it's violent or a reprehensible idea or not, the New York Times is absolutely right to give voice to something that a significant portion of Americans believed at the time. You may think it's wrong, but that's what the that is what a real journalistic outlet should do. It and the New York give, Times isn't saying he's right. Yeah, they're not saying he's right. They're yeah. saying we are going to put forward a cogent argument for why this senator, who's an elected representative who holds power, is giving voice to a significant portion of the American public opinion. This is let's put forward a strong case for it. And you know what? That is good. A newspaper should give dissenting viewpoints. Yeah. And anyway, so we don't have to go through the whole well, no, panel of what happened. I, I like that you're bringing that up because... Because uh, what happened is is that the pers the editor who made the decision to put that mm -hmm. op-ed in ended up getting fired. Yeah. Because <laughs> this course. was the height of absolute insanity yeah. during 2020. So anyway, my point is that Haaretz publishes everything from pro-government, pro-Netanyahu material to centrist... To rebels. To <laughs> absolute... I mean, some of the dissonant voices you see in Haaretz are... I mean, they may even... Th they may even have voices there that would actually call what Israel's doing ethnic cleansing. Hmm. This is Israelis calling what their government's doing that. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm reading, like, like I'm, I, I have to keep telling everyone, I'm reading Rise and Fall mm -hmm. of the Third Reich, and, and, and the, the German newspaper at the time was called the, the Volkshire Beobachter, 
yeah. I believe is the proper pronunciation, and it's uh, obviously headed by uh, Joseph Goebbels. And um, the the writer oh. of of Rise and Fall keeps informing the reader about what the Beobachter is saying at the given time mm-hmm. in Germany, and and it is it is. I I I take a very similar approach to that of um, Yuval Noah Harari in saying that history doesn't always quote unquote repeat itself. History is always new. Everything mm-hmm. today is it is always new. It's never the same. But ideas or themes uh, might be similar. So I'm not going to say it's the famous Mark Twain quote: "History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes." Yeah. You know, it, like, yeah okay. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I never heard that. That's that's mm-hmm. that, that's absolutely brilliant. Uh, so so Yuval Noah Harari doesn't say. You know, we can stop ourselves from repeating our past if we study history. Like a lot of people say, well, if we study enough history, we, we won't repeat our past. Yuval Noah Harari takes a controversial approach and says, no, we, we will keep repeating it, uh, but we can be more aware and, and be more prepared. Right. Uh, but, right. But, but it's interesting. So you, Harari has taught me not to equivocate so quickly. I'm not going to say the New York Times is the Volkswagen. Yeah. But... Uh, but like you said, it certainly rhymes mm-hmm. in, in in that it is a a, a monotonous stream of um, pro government ideas. Yeah, it's, it's, and, a, it's and become a moment, banal. Yeah, yeah. And the moment the moment you you put a dissenting idea, um, you are uh, maybe not shipped to a concentration camp as Goebbels would of want course, you to. But yeah, but but you are fired and you have to go into podcastistan. And in in a way, I mean, one might even make the argument that the form of self censorship that goes on in like the in in a society like this is actually in a way more insidious because it's it's the crude sort of prop censors in these totalitarian regimes. Everyone knows that there is this sort of like crude tyranny going on whereas in a society like ours where there's this there's delusion of ability to dissent when really there's this self-censorship and this this fear of stepping out of line of what progressive thought is supposed to be it actually is this more kind of like insidious form of it right and 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 so i I think it means a lot coming from us knowing that at least i don't think you would ever vote for trump i don't know you didn't right well, I'm 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 not going to I'm not going to oh, comment. But. Boy. Well, 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 <laughs> you, you know, we you know, we we typically, or at least I typically, I'm looking at Hunter here with smug eyes. Right. Of course. Uh, I, I tip, typically take a liberal approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as I voted, I've I've never voted conservative. There's been times when I've wanted to and still just could not bring myself to. So it should mean something when I say. It should mean something when I criticize or when we criticize, uh, whether whether despite who Hunter votes for, he's talking quite liberally mm-hmm. um, in a classical sense, in a classic, <laughs> in a classical liberally. Uh, so it should mean something when we criticize the way that our media is approaching this conflict. Yeah, and by the way, that's why that's why it's it is so it's important to be clear that up until this Israel conflict. It has been conservatives who have supported free speech against the sort of, if you want to call it cancel culture or the just sort of like the deviations from liberal orthodoxy, you know. But what's so interesting is that it is also true that conservatives that were supposedly free speech warriors have, because of the allegiance to Israel, they have really folded 
And in some ways, in some instances, I think you could accuse them of hypocrisy when it comes to their discomfort with pro-Palestinian activism on campus. And maybe they're saying stupid things, offensive things, terrible things. But, you know, conservatives have been so keen on calling free speech for even offensive views, views that offend the sensibilities of BLM or the trans agenda or any of these other, you know, kind of liberal bugaboos. But now all of a sudden when it's the cause of anti-Semitism, and I'm not saying that anti-Semitic speech or calls to genocide or whatever you want to call them are good. But in, if you really are going to be truly an advocate of free speech, that does mean that you do support the right to air even quote unquote hate speech, which in the United States is not really something that is an exception to freedom of speech. Hate speech quote unquote is an idea that is actually meant to carve out a, you know, a, a, an excuse to censor, a censor, you know, viewpoints. Yeah. Um, and there may be hate speech provisions when it comes to social media usage and social media activity. And that's fine because that's not the government saying you can and cannot say this or you can be punished for this kind of speech. But when it comes to a university and the idea of academic freedom and someone, you know, facing these sort of um, public universities like in Florida, disbanding Palestinian uh, political groups because of quote unquote hate speech, that does start to raise some real First Amendment free speech concerns. Yeah. This is a publicly funded university and they are taking action against student groups because of their political speech, not because of them harassing or intimidating specific individuals, but because they are saying things that are politically unpalatable to the governor or to the yeah. political leadership all right well i think we kind of covered everything i wanted us nice. to cover um yeah you did you did great but um i i often get bothered by especially in christian circles where mm -hmm. everyone says well um a good middle ground right a good middle ground and and i've always been uh, sometimes the middle ground is welcomed but i like our ideological borders to be very well defined right um you, you know you've certainly brought a lot of great historical context to me um i think people may want a summary i mean mm -hmm. i mean my summary at least from from my position i might not share the same position is you know you put a gun to my head tell me who to support it's israel uh however you you take the gun away from my head and let me let me communicate here is um there was there was land lost uh, or taken probably unjustly during the Six Day War, and what you said I think it was 1967. Mm -hmm. That might not be, probably is not, um, deserved to the uh, Israelis, and uh, the Palestinians have been deprived of political rights, and and uh, deserve a a a nation of their own mm -hmm. or at least a land of their own. They are. Um, corralled by what well, I think you mentioned the millions into into Gaza um which is also a detriment to civilian casualties in the conflict mm -hmm. and um it, if there's one thing I want the listener to know is you can support um the I Israel um 
while also criticizing it. Um, or, you, you, you know, you can criticize Hamas and still champion the political rights and the humanitarian rights of the Palestinian people. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I mentioned, I'm, 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 I'm still quite hesitant on a people group mm-hmm. of, of whether it be a race or a religion getting its own country that I'm quite hesitant to that. Right. Um, so I can, I can be hesitant to that and, and criticize that yet still hope it wins against a terrorist organization. And by the way, one thing that you just reminded me of, I, I mentioned earlier that we talked about this sort of like double standard, um, that's often mentioned. And I, I mentioned there was a train of thought that I had lost and you just reminded me of it, which is that this argument about, well, is it really right for a people group, whether that be religious or ethnic, to have their own state? That's often used against Israel. And it may be a good viewpoint to question in general, but it is interesting to note that there are plenty of Islam Islamic states in the world. Yeah. There are plenty of Christian and even I'm critical still, of that. There are plenty of Christian monarchies, at least in name and whatever, still. And there is really only one Jewish state. And so Correct. this, I know I'm echoing and I, I almost am cringing at myself because it's such a trite, like Zionist pro-Israel thing to make. But I just, I, I, it is at least true. That is true. And that doesn't change the principle. It doesn't change whether you're pro or against it. And I'm uncomfortable with it. But nonetheless, that remains to be, you know, singled out. So Yeah. yeah. Well. Um, if you're, so were you asking me to make my own summary statement? Um, or? Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah, tell well, us. Yes, please. On one hand, like, I, I'm almost uncomfortable making a summary statement because I think, you know, the best sort of thing to do is this kind of long form, just like really in-depth discussion about it because these things are nuanced. And so I'm, I Try love. artist. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I love the conversation we had. And, and as I said in the beginning, I'm hesitant to say, here's my one sentence definitive view that you must you know, that I want put by my name. Rather, I there are all these facts that are messy and complicated and true and, you know, things that I may have gotten wrong, factual points I may have gotten wrong, things I may have overlooked, and I welcome being, you know, challenged on those. And and I am a flawed, you know, non-expert on this. And rather, I'm someone who has sympathy for I, I admit my bias up front. I know Israel better. I know Israelis better. I personally have been in Israel. I have not personally been in and among Palestinians. However, I do have the sympathy toward their plight. And I just think that anyone who's at the least been honest should welcome the opportunity to see the other, the other in a conflict like this and mm-hmm. to see that they are human and there are things wrong in your own worldview. And, and that's something that I at least have tried to do on a basic level and do more and more as time goes on. And so I think we should all just be, you know, humble in a, in a conflict like this, like there, it is, there's a reason why it is so agonizing and causes so much, you know, debate and, and, and vitriol. And it, and it, it, on one hand, it's understandable that it does, but let's just all have a humanistic approach toward this and and have the you mentioned like being a christian in the christian call like i i i just view this toward you know we should have the love and compassion that requires if i love israel i want to criticize it love goes hand in hand in the christian view with truth you know if i really love something 
I'm not going to be sparing in when I think that there's a deviation from what is good for it or good in general, what is virtuous. I'm not going to say, oh, well, my love means I'm just going to enable. You know, that means calling to task when things are wrong. Yeah. And there's a lot of wrong going on on all sides here. And so, you know, to to act like that to dissent from what Israeli, you know, official positions are is, you know, dissenting from or deviating from love for Israel, I think that there's no way that's true. And I think in both of our summaries, we would add that we separate Palestinians from Hamas and we right. separate um, Israeli civilians from Netanyahu and his his. Even, even when, like we said earlier, it's obvious that Israelis do elect their government yes, in a much more yeah. regular and clear way. Yeah. I mean, but there's it's always true, for yeah. sure. Well, Hunter, um, you've been a privilege to have here. I doubt this will be the last time I think we can get uh, a much more exciting, heated debate. Certainly hope Russia, there's Ukraine. many more to come. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. been fun. Yeah, you've been brilliant. Um, but I do need more guests that have a better taste in, in liquor. <laughs> yes. That's true. All right. Uh, well, this has been the Vertical Podcast with uh, Hunter Reese. And so thanks again for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.